You're listening to Volmania, a show about the books of William Tanner Volman. In this episode, we're joined by Sean Spillane to talk about The Ice Shirt, the first volume in Seven Dreams, a book of North American landscapes. The red leaves blew down from the trees, and winter came. King Harold crewed his warship with bear sarks. He filled his army with them. He prayed to Thor and promised to feed him with blood. Then the horns blew, and Harold rode his white horse across the snow at a canter, pulling back the rein so that it reared and neighed and pawed with its front hoof. And Harold cried, Become bears, all of you, and rushed on at the head of his army, faster and faster, until the trees were but a blurred wall of evergreen. And he heard his bear sarks roaring and snarling behind him, with the changing fit upon them as they rode. Looking back, Harold saw not a man remaining. They were all bears, ice bears and black bears, and grizzlies on horseback, with their spears aloft in their claws, and their teeth grinned as they roared, and King Harold's heart was joyous with cruel lust. Night and day they rode. The snow trees rose white and thin upon the mountains, and the sky was bluish orange. Harold led the army along frozen river roads paved with snow. He went north through the trees until, says his saga, he came to inhabited lands. He ordered his bear sarks to kill every man they found and to clothe every farm and town in the flame shirt. Hey everyone, welcome back to Volmania, a show about the books of William Tanner Volman. My name's Ryan Alexander, and I'm here today as always with Jordan Rothacker, my co-host, now in the year 2023, to thank you, our listeners, for continuing with us into a new season, our second season of the show. It's a fortuitous beginning in many respects, especially in the sense that today's episode is the first to concern the Seven Dreams series, which is considered by many to be Bill's magnum opus. And we couldn't be happier than to have today's guest, Sean Spillane, joining us for this conversation. You probably know him as Sean from Travel Through Stories. As someone who creates supplemental content for the fiction that I love and puts it out there for public consumption, I've been a longtime viewer of quote-unquote booktube, the literary conversation and the content creators active on YouTube. And when I think of the channels that I still watch regularly and greatly admire, Sean's travel through stories is really right up there at that high water mark. We're constantly thinking of who to invite on the show and who would make a good interlocutor, not only in terms of conversation with Jordan and myself, but also matching each guests and their sensibilities and their interests with one of Bill's books. And I immediately realized Sean would be perfectly suited for the ice shirt. He's a medievalist focused on Scandinavian, Icelandic, and Old Norse literatures, both in the original languages and in translation. And he has a well-documented personal interest in postmodern, maximalist literary fiction. So given that very terse and insufficient introduction, Sean, would you like to introduce yourself to our audience and kick off this sophomore season of Volmania? Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Um, really honored to be here. Absolutely love the show. I'm Sean. I have a YouTube channel called Travel Through Stories. And then my day job is I am an academic. Don't have a PhD just yet, but I should be defending this summer. So I'm coming up towards the end. But my academics are mainly focused on Old Norse Icelandic with a bit of Old English, a bit of Old French. I'm really kind of interested in the kind of cross-cultural contact between these different linguistic and cultural and ethnic groups and the kind of literature that springs out of that. So I think reading 
Volman's adaptation of these narratives of these sagas is just fantastic. And I'm looking forward to this discussion. Yeah, thanks for joining us today. So this is obviously the most sort of directly relevant to your your expertise and, and your interests. But I was just curious, what was your introduction of Volman? How did you discover? We've talked a little bit. You've read some other works by Volman. Yeah, while I, I am a medievalist, I kind of moonlight as a maximalist postmodernist, uh, where I, I like reading a, a lot of kind of maximalism. My introduction to Volman was actually, I'm not sure if I recommend this, but was The Lucky Star, his kind of latest fiction, I suppose. Um, I picked that up right when it came out in 2020. I think it came out in January or February. And I read that. Um, I, I've been aware of Volman for a while, specifically of his seven dreams. But that was the first one that I actually picked up and decided to dive in. And after that, I, which I, I did enjoy that one, it was just kind of, that book's a lot. Um, <laughs> from there, I read Last Stories and Other Stories, the short story collection. Absolutely loved those. I thought they were great. And I've also read excerpts from a lot of his other works. I've read a lot of excerpts from The Atlas. I read about three-fourths of Argyll and didn't finish it, but that isn't to say anything negative about Argyll. I, I think it's a fantastic book. I just didn't get around to finishing it. And I've also read quite a bit of his nonfiction, specifically his books on climate change, No Immediate Danger, which uh, I was just telling you guys right before we started recording that uh, I actually taught it or in a very small excerpt from it just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and my students were kind of floored by Volman's directness in, at the beginning of that book on climate change, where he addresses future readers who are living in this desolate and decrepit world. My students found much to sink their teeth into uh, and much to kind of be disgusted with, but I think in a in a <laughs> proactive way. What would you say is your favorite work so far? Is there any one that stood out for you in particular? I think his short stories and last stories and other stories are pretty exceptional. Some of them I think it's a bit uneven, but I think his short stories there when he's dealing with kind of horror and relating it to these kind of social issues that he's always interested in. I think that's where he really shines, in, in, in my opinion, so far. Now that you mentioned it, I was thinking about some of those entries and my, some of them are my favorites, but the Judge's Promise, which I think mm -hmm. sort of is similar in, in many ways to the book we'll be talking about, The Ice Shirt later today, and, mm -hmm. and sort of that hybridity and, and the blend of the supernatural and the direct. Could you tell us a bit about your reading life and, and how you came to start Travel Through Stories? Because I, I do think it's, for me, one of the standout channels on BookTube and, and one that I'm always on the lookout for a new upload. And to, to decide to launch that and then to balance your work life and your personal life with that sort of content creation, I'd be very interested to hear about. Yeah, I appreciate that a lot. Yeah, so I started it kind of for, for very selfish reasons. And it's mainly to do with the fact that academia is very isolating and you feel very isolated. And one of the reasons for that is that we have these images of academia as being these very collaborative spaces. And a lot of the time they are, and I'm not speaking ill of any of my colleagues here, but one of the issues with academia is that you have to so hyper fixate and hyper focus on a very specific moment in time or a very specific culture that I often find that a lot of academics can't communicate across borders, specifically temporal borders, most prominently and most emphatically in my case as a medievalist in an English department, where I would talk with my colleagues and we would always kind of just be at odds and we couldn't really communicate because we haven't read each other's things. So I kind of made a active choice to seek out literature from outside of my realm of expertise. And a lot of that is contemporary and 20th century literature. And I, I, I noticed that when I was reading these books, because I wasn't doing anything with them, 
Um, I would just kind of read them and then put them down and forget about them. And there's something that I do with my students that is, I, I make my students write weekly reading responses when I'm teaching a literature course. Um, they have to respond to the text in some way before coming to class to discuss it. Because I find that in writing is when we really begin to process works, that kind of really active reading. So when I decided to start my channel, it was entirely for selfish reasons that if I force myself to sit down and write a script, then I force myself to interact with the text on a on a deeper level. So that's why I started the channel, just so I could force myself to write down scripts of all these wonderful books. So I would really process them in perhaps a deeper way than I was before. You've mentioned your academic work now, and and one thing particularly stood out there as a, as a medievalist in an English department. So I was hoping you could tell us more about the focus of your studies and what prompted that decision. I was interested in becoming a historian. I did my MA, didn't end up doing my PhD. So to hear about a medievalist coming into an English department rather than going for a history degree is very interesting to me. And I believe you, you're sort of writing about the sagas right now, and you have a paper in the works. So maybe you could tell us a bit about both. Yeah. So interestingly, I also come from a history background as well. My bachelor's was in history. And then at the last moment, I decided to double major in history and English. And then I did a master's in medieval studies, which is by nature interdisciplinary. Um, so I always have this kind of dual focus on history and English. And I just kind of ended up in an English department rather than in a history department, though I would say my dissertation is pretty much 50-50 history and English. So my, my work is mainly in the field of Old Norse mixed with the field of translation studies. I'm very interested in, in translations and adaptations and translation theory as one thing that a lot of, well, a lot of the field of medieval studies is very segregated into kind of weird proto-nationalistic groupings in that you have the old English people, they do old English, then you have the old French people and they do old French and the old high German people. And very few scholars acquire the linguistic skills and the kind of cross-cultural skills to really look at how these communities were interacting. This isn't to say that I'm the only one to do this, obviously, but this was a trend for a very long time that I noticed. And so a very neglected set of texts are translations, because medieval people, just like modern people, were interested in other cultures, and they were often translating other people's or other cultures' texts and translating them into not only their own language, but into their own culture. So one thing that really began to fascinate me as I dove into Old Norse is we have these sources that no one really likes to talk about that are very inspired by either continental trends or insular British trends. And these sources were often neglected because they are, by nature, derivative. So one thing that I decided to really focus on was the translator and the translation as this mm -hmm active cultural site that you could read and see someone actively negotiating between two worlds. One thing I'm, I'm quite interested in are all of these translations, again, from Old French and Latin into Old Norse, and how the medieval Icelanders especially took what they read and then made it Norse. And often this has produced very bizarre literature because uh, Icelanders were very geographically remote and very culturally remote in a lot of ways. Right now, I'm working on a chapter that is looking at the Old Norse travel narrative, which a lot of the sagas are about travel because there are a lot of them are about Vikings and Vikings are notorious travelers. But one thing that I, I've noticed is that a lot of these sagas, at least in my opinion, are very inspired by the medieval tra travel narrative. People like Marco Polo, people like John Mandeville. And so 
What I'm doing this chapter now is looking at a few other sagas that look at travels to the Far East. And then in the second half of the chapter that I'm, I'm actually currently working on, literally this weekend, is looking at the, the Vinland sagas, the two Vinland sagas, and these travels to the Far West. Mm-hmm. And thinking about how these far geographical regions, these travels to these, these other worlds, these peripheral areas, mm-hmm. how the Icelanders used these travel narratives to kind of think about their own peripherality as they're also peripheral to Europe. So yeah, the, the Vinland sagas are very studied. They're, I think, the most written about sagas, but for good reason. That sounds like wonderful stuff. So how, how proficient are you in, um, in these languages that you've been working with? I'm pretty uneven, I would say, um, uh, in all the ones I, I mentioned. In Old Norse, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable. Pretty comfortable in Old English. My Old French is passable. Um, my Latin is passable. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, it's kind of a little bit all over the place, but I'm pretty comfortable with Old Norse, Old English, Middle mm-hmm. English, nice. those kind of languages, yeah. I've been listening to the audio version of his art books that haven't come out yet, but the audio books exist. And he talks <laughs> yeah. about when he went to uh, to Norway to do these, you know, sketches of people as the gods, as the, you know, Asgardian gods and uh, the Acer. And um Oh wow, uh, I didn't I didn't oh, yeah. I didn't realize that. So this is Shadows of Love, Shadows of Loneliness, the forthcoming art books. Uh, that's so yeah, that no, that's an amazing uh, catch. I didn't realize that. Yeah, I've seen some of them in person at, at his studio. So he did these kind of block prints of the publisher provided for him people to model, men and women that he would draw and then make these block prints of them as the different Aesir, the Asgardian gods. But he mentioned when he went over to do to Norwegian translations and stuff that he he followed the uh, the Ezra Pound uh, method where he just brought a dictionary and a grammar to do mm-hmm. this kind of work. And I'm wondering if you've ever seen, he's done some of these kind of translations on his own. There was a a journal, a literary journal that published a piece by him called Show Me a How. Have you have you seen this? No. I can I can send it to both of you right now. He's he's using a Hollander's translation and he's kind of mm-hmm. picking at it. It's the the second of the two lays devoted to the hero Helga Vitha in uh, in the poetic Edda. It's him, a very small essay by Volman, kind of looking at linguistical stuff within the Eddas there that might be something handy for for what you're working on. Yeah, that, that sounds fascinating. Um, and yeah, it, it sounds like he joins a long list of very good writers who are interested in Old Norse. Uh, people like Jorge Luis Borges, uh, oh, very yeah. famously was super interested in Old English and Old Norse. Uh, people yeah. like William Morris, of course, J.R. Tolkien, obviously. But yeah, that that's, that's, that actually sounds fascinating. I didn't know he's he's done any translation work or, or any other kind of adaptation work mm-hmm. outside of the ice shirt. Yeah, there's that story of the one time that Anthony Burgess and Borges ever met. They spoke in... I think it was either Old English or Old Norse the whole time. I mean, okay. they were in D.C. at some literary event. They were just like this little corner snobs amongst themselves, which, you know, just speaking in uh, some language they both loved as amateur linguists um, and, and everyone else got to look on. We know Bill is, you know, this amazing intellect, right? And going to Deep Springs and he he must have a pretty broad facility with language. He knows French, right? based on the, you know, Latremont connection. And then I was just thinking about that because I've been dipping into poor people and he talks mm-hmm. about the importance of, of translation. I think he always hires a translator and that's always his advice, you know, to me when I go to do field work and, and it gives you a chance, to, it gives the other person a chance to be comfortable because the language is more better than he or I could do. And then you've got a chance to kind of lay back and also take notes while the people are, I mean, I think he's probably pretty good with Spanish at this point too. And um, the French, I know he studied in school at Deep Springs because he's talked a bit about reading like the counterfeiters by Gide during that period yep. and like yes. how 
the slang of it, you know, is is almost indistinguishable at a certain point. And I think he even mentioned once that like Celine is usually read by French in translation now because the French is so gutter French that it's hard to actually read by a contemporary French reader. But he might have also been talking about the counterfeiters also by Gide with that. I might be mixing them up. Then Japanese, I imagine, with Kissing the Mask. Mm-hmm. And he talks a lot about the tale of Genji being mm-hmm. one of his his favorite works of all time. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if he was dipping into some some of that in the original language. Yeah, you'd, you'd imagine it helped. I always tell my students when I teach a little Joyce that James Joyce at 16, teaching himself Norwegian so he could read Ibsen in the original. I, I imagine Bill is doing that for Genji. And getting back to something you said, Sean, is now that I'm making that connection... I, I can't speak German, but I can read German fairly well. And and so what I've been doing is taking a look at the works of Peter Weiss, the author of The Aesthetics of Resistance, among many other works, playwright, novelist, filmmaker. Again, we get into the, the sort of vagaries of borders, right? But, uh, you know, I, I think apropos of what you were talking about, that idea of having a close read and translation is like nothing else in terms of close reading a text. Mm-hmm. Even And it, it's just heightened my respect so much for the people who do this for a living for some of the presses we know and love. Because when you sit down and you actually pen and paper, notepad, got leo.net or whatever on my uh, my iPad and I'm going through and actually trying to bring it over word for word, it's just an incredible art form. Yeah, I, I always recommend to people who love reading to try to translate anything that they can. Because translation is one of the, as you said, one of the greatest forms of reading. Um, at, at no point are you closer to a text than when you're trying to make it, you're trying to take every single small part of it and trying to make it into something new. You need to understand the text so closely mm-hmm. to be able to do that. It's actually funny. I remember when I first took one of my, one of my first Old Norse classes, my professor said that we're going, you know, we're going to be reading all of these sagas. I was like, great. I, I have all the sagas. I, I can read them. And I didn't even realize that when, when he said read, he meant translate. Mm-hmm. He was using the terms interchangeably uh, because to him, reading is translating. If you're dealing with texts outside of your original language, reading it in translation is, is fine, but that's not how you really get at the text itself. It's to translate it yourself and then compare it with other translations, of course. And it sounds like what you're doing, I mean, what's so awesome about your academic work is that you're looking at these these intercessors. You're looking at these people who themselves are like a liminal space between cultures, that they're not only just translating a text, they're translating a culture between the one that they're of, the one that they may have partaken of in some way or another to get that language and knowledge. It's so kind of crucial in, in the pre-modern world, especially, that those people who had those skills. And as we, as we see in the ice shirt, the writers, the kind of, you know, the, the roles of these storytellers and how important they are to the people of their time, that they're the ones who are, if people aren't literate, they're, they're the ones who are sharing the stories. And to look at how, you know, texturally important that role is gets me pretty excited about, about your work. And I, I look forward to, to reading it. Translation, you know, right now is is sort of the topic du jour in, in the literary discourse. You know, everything from putting the translator on the cover and and really highlighting them as a co-author or an author, really, um, as we've talked about. But then just sort of in new releases. I mean, one thing that I'm very happy about that I think everyone's been very happy about is Ross Benjamin's new translation of Kafka's Diaries and the discussion around. I think that we've all known the role of Max Broad. Anyone who's read Kafka for some time knows about that sort of mediation. But now, again, that that question of translation, comparing translations, intention, 
what is being done is it in service of the text. So Sean, I wanted to ask, this is sort of the new student question, right? First year student question. I was curious, what would you recommend is the best place to start for new readers to begin with Viking? And, and that's something that we'll get into is the, the term Viking and what, what do we, I'm using scare quotes for our listeners around Viking, uh, Viking history and literature, where would be the best place to start? This is a difficult one. And this is actually something that uh, you mentioned students. This is something that I used to use as a way to show my students the danger of just using Google. You used to be able to, uh, uh, Google has since amended this, um, but you used to be able to search the poem Vuluspau, which is one of the most famous Old Norse poems. It tells of the creation of the world and the destruction of the world, Ragnarok. You used to be able to search that poem, and on the very first page of Google, you would come to a website called racerealist.com. And you got so (laughs) immediately... So people's first interaction with this poem would be from the perspective of a white nationalist. And so Viking studies, insert scare quotes, of course, obviously a very fraught discipline. Um, And we always kind of, whenever I tell people that I do Old Norse, I always have to be like, but not in the weird way, right? (laughs) Um, But what I would really recommend if people are actually interested in the medieval Nordic period is just pick up some of the sagas and read them. I think I always tell people that they'll be surprised with how easy they are to read. It, it isn't like even something like Beowulf in Old English, which is a poem I adore. Um, and I always recommend people read that if they haven't read it since high school. That is even more difficult than a lot of the sagas because the sagas are written in prose and they very much feel like modern novels. I think it was Milan Kundera who said something like, if the Old Norse sagas were in any other European language than Old Norse, we would consider them to be the precursor to the modern novel. They feel like novels. I think we've spoken about this, Ryan, that the most difficult part of reading the sagas <laughs> is just keeping all the all of the different Thors straight um, because mm-hmm. everyone and their kid is named Thorfinn or Thorkel or Thorin or whatever. Yeah. But I always recommend just picking up the sagas and reading them. Pick up Gisli's saga or Ale Skallagrimson's saga or Hrabinkel saga mm-hmm. and just try reading it. You'll find that it's actually quite easy to follow. My fave. Nial Saga. Fantastic. Yeah, saga. I remember like reading this, like I'd read all the, like I was really into Edith Hamilton as a kid and reading her mythologies. And even though she's mostly Greek, there is that section in the back of all the Norse stuff in her mythology. So I was reading all the different kinds of mythologies when I was really young. And, and I, was, I was dipping into the actual original sources occasionally. But when I first read this, I think it was like during college or towards the end of college for me, it was that same kind of realization that like, it's just wonderful, straightforward mm-hmm. novels. And Kundera would probably have a problem that it's not the psychological novel. We, we don't really get as intimate into the characters. Mm-hmm. There's just a lot of almost like buckshot of characters, you know, and they're quite often named Thor. But I remember telling a friend, I'm kind of flashing back on when I started reading this. And it was after I read the, the Ice Shirt that I started reading after I discovered Volman. That it was extremely democratic and extremely brutal was my first my memory of the old saga. That like everything is like some kind of justice needed to always be meted out, even though it's often justice with an axe, you know. Um, but there was a balance that always had to happen of, of justice and and getting to the all thing. But it was maybe brutal justice, but but a sense of justice. Oh, for, for sure. Nyal Saga is absolutely fantastic. If you're, I mean, if you're going to just read one saga, that's kind of the crown jewel of of saga writing um it's just the longest by like yeah. at least double it's over 300 pages um and mm-hmm. so my family tree this is something i always recommend when reading a saga is to create your own family tree as you read which is mm-hmm. tedious but necessary mm-hmm. again to keep the thor straight <laughs> my family tree of Nyal saga is four 
pages taped together. Uh, yep. And it's just this massive mess. The sagas are, I often liken them to a fantasy novel, or to treat them like a kind of fantasy novel, mm-hmm. because they do this world building and you get introduced to their justice system, which, mm-hmm. as Jordan says, is is quite brutal in a lot of ways, but also quite well, they have a very full justice system. I, I'll say that uh, Iceland is famous for having the the world's old, oldest parliament um, yeah. at this place called the All Thing. The most famous people in medieval Iceland were lawyers. Brennu Njal um, from Njal Saga was a lawyer. At no point during his own saga does he pick up a sword. He is a lawyer. We're going to get into this in a minute with our histories with the book, but there was definitely a bit of trepidation on my part. I read Beowulf and, you know, funny enough, in terms of reconstructions and retellings, Grendel, of course, in in middle school. But I really stayed away from the sort of the old uh, texts of of this manner. But picking up the Vinland sagas, they're very digestible. And as um, Mm -hmm. Sean mentioned, they're, they're very approachable the names notwithstanding. And I think this is something you touched on in your Northman review, the Robert Edgar's film, is they lend themselves well to that sort of propulsive narrative that you would see in cinema. You know, it's a directness, there's action, there's a variety of genres, and you can get your bearings pretty easily. And also just a very fascinating and entertaining and fun talking about the porousness of certain borders between the supernatural and mm-hmm. and the natural. And and I, we definitely see that in the ice shirt. We see that mm-hmm. in the Northmen. But obviously it applies equally to the, the sagas upon which they're based. For anyone who who has that interest in in high fantasy, this is where it's coming from. I think a lot of people know that, obviously, through yeah. Tolkien. But you can definitely say, I mean, it, this is going to be the most ridiculous thing I might say on this podcast. I recently watched, speaking of Tolkien, The Rings of Power and wasn't a fan of the show. But the point of the reason I'm raising it now is because when I was reading Freydis climbing Blauserk to Amor Tortak's fortress, mm-hmm. I was like, wow, this is... This is kind of the beginning of that show with Galadriel climbing this this frost mountain. I was like, okay, you kind of see that this is these are things that we tell and tell again, and that are, are you know this mythology for a reason for its entertainment purposes. I think we get into you know as we talk about Bill, the more substantive human uh, excavation, and that we'll get into. To begin, then our discussion of the ice shirt, a brief synopsis for our listeners. During his time embedded with the SF Skins, the white supremacist gang documented in the Rainbow Stories entry, The White Knights, William T. Volman mused parenthetically, I wonder if our country was better when Indians lived on it by themselves, fishing, hunting, and weaving blue blankets, or whether it was just as dreary, wastes of bog and forests then corresponding to wastes of buildings now. From this frost seed grew what is considered by many to be his greatest literary achievement, Seven Dreams, a book of North American landscapes. This ongoing cycle, which includes 1990's The Ice Shirt, 1992's Fathers and Crows, 1994's The Rifles, 2001's Argal, and 2015's The Dying Grass, as well as the as-yet-unpublished volumes The Poison Shirt and The Cloud Shirt, excavates a millennium of repeated collisions between Native Americans and their European colonizers and oppressors. Unbound by slavish literalism, Volman polished the history of our continent in the days of the sun, the saints, the riflemen, 
Ocaeus, and Indian service as if it were a pair of glasses to look through, and produced what he calls a symbolic history, an account of origins and metamorphoses which is often untrue based on the literal facts as we know them, but whose untruths further a deeper sense of truth. In this first dream, the ice shirt, William the Blind scales the frozen night cliff of three 12th and 13th century texts, the Heimskringla, Flaty Yarbach, and Specula Mergale, to recapitulate the Viking discovery of Wineland the Good and the first colonial project on the North American continent. In typical Volmanian fashion, these events are disrupted in both chronology and topicality. Flowing along the stream of time, we witness the rise and fall of the Bear Kings of Old Norway, the exile of Eric the Red Thorvaldsen to Iceland, and the economic and social privation suffered by indigenous peoples in 1987 Greenland. Most audaciously, Volman centers his saga on the Cairo protagonists of Gudrid Thjorbjorn's daughter and Freydis Eric's daughter, and how the latter, along with the demon Blue Shirt, brought the frost to Vinland, a thousand years of subjugation, genocide, and empire. While each of the seven ages accounted for in this series may indeed be different than the one which came before it, ultimately the story of America and claims of its social and moral progress are revealed as a malicious canard, what William the Blind, as the reader's Virgil, refers to as one black dream. So, getting into the ice shirt, the reason we're all here today, <laughs> Jordan, Sean, always like to ask what everyone's personal history with the book is. So have you read it previously? If so, what did you think? And if not, what were your impressions, expectations, and assumptions about the ice shirt? It was a pretty early Volman for me, as, as I mentioned before many times on the show, that like I started with the Atlas and then looking at his body work at that point. So that was 99 that I first read the Atlas. And so looking at the other stuff that was out, I mean, I was instantly drawn to, to this. I mean, it's mythology and history together. And I mean, it's a it's a mythology that I'd read a lot about at that point and super, super excited about it and, and you know, kind of where he was going with it. And so I read it maybe right around Horse for Glory. Like Horse for Glory, I probably digested because it was really short, maybe right after the Atlas. But it was one of the first three, four Volman books I got. I got the Atlas and then I got you Brighton Risen Angels, Force for Glory, and Ice Shirt, probably right at the same time. And there's, there's probably a receipt in one of them at some point around here. But so my read of the Ice Shirt was, I was just kind of staggered by it. I read through it, enjoyed all the different ways that it was connecting the, the indigenous here and, and the Norse, and was pretty blown away by it. But more my kind of being enamored by Volman as a whole, and not as much as the direct time to spend and like kind of take the notes on the book and, and, you know, really walk through. And, and I can, I think either kind of understand the actual context of what he's doing and how amazing, you know, Friedrich is and that kind of stuff that really only hit me on this read now in the last month. Um, I've picked the book up several times in the last 20 something years to read chunks of it and to revisit off in the beginning. I really like the, uh, the, the kind of the, the ice text and the, the beginning of all the seven dreams, the way he kind of pulls people in, um, that kind of magical relationship between William the Blind and the reader is something that I go back to in all of them a good bit. But then in returning to like kind of how daunting the narrative can be and how complicated and how many names, I really put off getting back to it until like fully engaging the whole text until until recently. So I've got even a, a new greater respect for it. But it was pretty early on in my Volman read and 
I appreciated it and would tout different things about it and recommend it to people, but never having kind of like the full depth that I've, that I've put into it recently. Sean, I don't believe you had read it before, but obviously I'd be very interested to hear your perspective given your uh, expertise. Yeah, I haven't read it before. I, and this might strike some people as, as sounding strange, but I often don't like reading modern adaptations of medieval stuff. I often find that, for one, it often just feels like work as I'm kind of forced to <laughs> sit there and and think, even if I don't want to, like what's right and wrong, which is a kind of a silly way to approach any text. But I often feel like a lot of people, when they go to adapt medieval story worlds, they understand the plot, but they don't understand the world. They don't understand the tone, the the mental world and the physical world and our character's relationship to it. Um, the worldview of medieval people was very different than our modern post-Enlightenment world. I initially was interested in it, as I'm always interested in modern adaptations, but I didn't immediately dive into it. But I'm happy to say that I'm, I'm very glad that I had the opportunity to read it recently because I really enjoyed it. And I think that what Volman does, he doesn't try to simply just translate these stories into the modern world, but he tries to inhabit their worldview and does so in a I think ethical is the wrong the wrong word here, but in like an ethical way, in a way that shows empathy for these characters, while not simply just like saying that they belong to a different world long ago and far away. He brings them into the modern world while respecting their autonomy, I suppose. I think ethical is a great word for that because it's it's kind of a sense of responsibility to not mm -hmm. just to the text. And the context of the text, you know, the text and its history, those who have touched it in different ways. I know what we'll get more into, of course, is that, and it's in the agenda that Ryan has drafted for us, but kind of how much more of the text and language of the conqueror there is than the conquered, than the indigenous. And of course, part of the project of the whole seven dreams is that it's in the language of the conqueror. Nothing more explicit than, of course, Argyll, that's in, you know, Elizabethan English. But that's one of those things that even you know stood out more in relief to me now is that he's doing the best he can, and there's just so much more of the of the Greenland, the Viking, the Norse stuff than there is of the indigenous, and so he he has to respect it and be responsible to it in many different ways. And so I think the kind of um, ethics works in in lots of ways because it's about the practice of what he's doing, but also a sense of kind of responsibility to to the the people and the time and the and the text. I know we might get to a discreet conversation about William the Blind later, but you've both brought it up here. I think the one instance that stood out to me, and even though it was very small, is the Bear Kings of Old Norway, and we have Harold Fairhair, right? And he has this uh, sort of uh, fantastical dream experience. And William the Blind is is talking about being afraid of Laplandish witchcraft and how they're kind of responsible for all the, the trickery and the mischief and the chaos in the world. And something that's fascinated me about William the Blind as a, as a character and as the most sort of frequently recurring self-insert for Bill is, is what he represents and how he's both contemporary to us or to the time in which the book's written. It is Bill in a certain sense, as he has said in an interview for The Dying Grass, but it's not. It's it's reflective of the time and the social attitudes and the prejudices in which the novel itself is set. And for me, I first became really cognizant of this reading The Dying Grass and Grass Text, which opens it where you see William the Blind in attendance of Rutherford B. Hayes' inaugural address in 1877. And he's 
espousing some virulently like anti-black and anti-indigenous sentiments. And he has a son who was killed under the command of the main character, Oliver Otis Howard. So he's interacting with the story in the matter of, of sort of this, of his, his own ethics, his own personality, his own mores that are, are fed to and a part of this sort of broader collective. And so I recognize that similar worldview pretty immediately now coming back to the first novel and seeing that sort of passive received antipathy or superiority towards Laplanders or the British, Irish, Hebridean, uh, and then most of all, certainly the indigenous. And, and yeah, so I think that ties into ethics, as you said. And so my, <laughs> I'm dipping my toe into the water of theory here, which I, uh, so I, I apologize to all my theory friends if I butcher it at all, but I was reading an essay by Frederick Jameson and he talks about this concept of the dialogical Aegon as being a particular voice. And in his opinion, the only, or his argument being the only success, ethically successful voice that one can write the historical novel in being both uh, connected to and apart from a particular period in representing it, recognizing mediation, recognizing appropriation, particularly around the concepts of historical trauma. So I think that ties into kind of everything we're talking about here. I did yeah. want to talk a bit about my assumptions coming into the text yeah, as yeah, yeah. well. Yeah. I have to say, I, I feel like I shortchanged whether it's Bill as author or whether it's the sagas and the Viking literature as a whole. So again, like Jordan takes me back to my earliest days of reading Volman. A couple of years ago when I did the Volmania group read, it was The Seven Dreams and I was I made a choice. I, I kind of leaned on the excuse of Bill saying, which is probably a commercial marketing thing of, oh, you can kind of pick them up and read whichever one you want. You can read them out of order. It doesn't matter. Mm. And And that may be true, but Something I've learned through the show is the benefit of reading sequentially. I think I've picked up on things I wouldn't have otherwise. But yeah, I was uh, very self-serving. I said, I'm going to pick three that look good to me. And I immediately jumped over. And part of the reason that drove that is I just didn't have an interest in this uh, period in this culture. Yeah, I'm coming from a history background where I focused on contemporary European history and particularly World War II, the Holocaust, and the Nazi medical apparatus. That's what my focus is. Thus, my interest in in Europe Central. Mm -hmm. And I think like Sean, a, a strong interest in that book, but also a little bit of skepticism because you can't really turn that analytical side of your brain off. And I'm thinking, you know, particularly about the characterization of Kurt Gerstein. But yeah, I, I think I decided, okay, I'm, I don't really want to do the whole Viking thing. So I'm just going to jump over. Mm -hmm. And I did a disservice to myself as a reader, because I think as we're going to talk about, this is an outstanding book. And I think there's so much enjoyment. I I'm just amazed by Bill's growth as an author, as a writer here. You know, Jordan, when we, when we talked about this, maybe an episode or two, Matt, last episode, I think towards the end of our conversation with Daniel, you had said like, you're really excited to get to the seven dreams because you feel like that's a watershed moment. And I think you're absolutely right. And I couldn't be happier to have been proven wrong. And I, I find that to be so funny because I would think you'd go straight to this with your German background. Because, I mean, as you're seeing with Europe Central, I mean, the Wagner's coming into it, his Nibelung, all the going back to this. Hitler as the sleepwalker, I feel like he's kind of like Loki. He's inhabiting that kind of either trickster figure or feeling he's part of this Ragnarok ending. 
of course, you can have Norse stuff without having the, the Teutonic and then the, the Germanic connection. You know, you could look at them separately, but it often just kind of goes hand in hand. I would just think that this would be more in your wheelhouse with your modern German connection. But I'm glad that you finally... Uh, and, and that's actually what you brought up was was also instrumental to me in, the, in my reread, since I hadn't like read this in depth again in like 20 years. You're right, though. They're like the key to all the other seven dreams is here. He's seeing that project, at least some form of full project, and he's letting us know in this. Well, I think that's a great point of transition. Speaking of projects, I thought it'd be good to start us off loomings, as it were, the intention for the seven dreams as a series. There are two really key texts here I want to read from. The first being from the Expelled from Eden reader, which is his letter, sort of almost like a query almost, uh, probably to a potential publisher about Seven Dreams. And it's called Seven Dreams Description of Project. Summary of Aims. When Norsemen first discovered America in the 10th century, they called it Vinland because there were wild grapes everywhere. They rushed from their ships to drink the sweet dew, Vinland would have been paradise were it not for the fact that other people already lived there. The Indians, whom the Norse called Skraelings, or savage wretches. The Skraelings were clad in animal skins. Their food was deer marrow mixed with blood. Despising them as outlaws, the would-be settlers cheated them at trade or killed them as they slept. Not surprisingly, the Indians fought back, to such good effect that in the end the colonists gave up. Vinland was left more or less alone for 600 years, but there is a haunting moment in the medieval Greenlanders saga when... And now Sean will read the extract Bill quotes from here in the English translation by Kniva Coons, followed by the original Old Norse. The natives soon came to the place Carl Stephanie had intended for the battle. They fought, and a large number of the natives were killed. One of the men in the natives' group was tall and handsome, and Carl Stephanie thought him likely to be their leader. One of the natives then picked up an axe, peered at it a while, and then aimed at one of his companions and struck him. The other fellow was killed outright. The tall man then picked up the axe, examined it a while, and threw it as far out into the sea as he could. After that, the natives fled into the woods at top speed, and they had no more dealings with them. Nuvaru thessi rauthhoeth er kalsefni lagthitil, nu komus greilingar i Er Kalsefni hafteth atlat ter bardaga, nu varthar bardagi, ak fjell fjölthi, af lithi skrælinga. En mather var mikil, ak vain i lithi skrælinga, ak thotti Kalsefni, sem han mundi vara höfthingi thera. Nu, hafti ein thera skrælinga, tekit up uxa eina, ak leit a om stund, a raidi, at fjallaga sinum, og hjo til hans, sau fjell thegar doither. Thau tok sau in mikli mather vif øksini, og leit au um stund, og varp henni sidan au sjoen, sem lengest mauti han. En sidan fluja þær á skogen, svau kvær sem fara mauti, og líkjar þar nu þær vif skiptum. And now back to Volman's description of the Seven Dreams. Seven Dreams will open with this scene, when the Indian leader rejects the axe, and will close inside a uranium mine on a Navajo reservation, when Vinland has largely been tunneled through and concreted over. 
Implicit in the axe is a reified evil which both the Indian leader and the Icelandic saga writer recognize. Seven Dreams will structure its story upon such reifications. The standard trope in sagas of the weapon that is cursed and turns upon its owner. The Plains Indian trickster figure Coyote, who in my novel will continue to survive in the metropolis. And the various spirits of land itself, who shrink and die with its failing possibilities. In no way will Seven Dreams be a factual history of the dispossession of American Indians. It will, however, be erected upon a foundation of fact, as the note on sources at the end of Seven Dreams puts it. My aim in Seven Dreams has been to create a symbolic history, that is to say, an account of origins and metamorphoses, which is often untrue based on the literal facts as we know them, but whose untruths further a deeper sense of truth. Did the Norsemen, for instance, really come to the New World bearing ice in their hearts? Well, of course they did not. But if we look upon the Vinland episode as a precursor of the infamies there, of course they did. Here one walks a proverbial tightrope, on the one side of which lies slavish literalism, on the other, self-indulgence. So my hope is that in reading these extracts, as lengthy as they may have been, we haven't strayed too far afield, and that it is instructive, at least it was for me, because as a reader, I had an opportunity to sort of chart the trajectory of, of Bill's intentions as we read in this pricey or query letter, and then how it ultimately manifests within the dreams themselves. He says his original plan was to open the series with this scene. However, we don't really see it in the actual book until the closing 60 pages, which I'm going to read from shortly, so you can hear the final product, which is a battle between the forces of Carl Sefni and those of an original character to the ice shirt, an indigenous leader named Carrying the War Club. But the strangest thing, and perhaps the most significant in this whole dream, remains to be mentioned. It had been told that two of Carl Sefni's men were killed. One was Snorri's son Thorbrand, and the other was a man in Bjarni Grimmelson's crew named Odd. Odd had had an axe. Seeing it lying there sparkling in the sun, carrying the war club rushed to possess it, for here at last he could achieve his purpose. Now there were many names for an axe. Some called it Shield Fiend, and some called it Helmet Witch. Some knew it as War Witch. To others it was Wound Wolf. But Odd's axe had simply been his axe. It was made of good iron. Its blades widened rapidly on both sides, and abruptly flared to make its single jaw, which could bite deep into men's bones. It was decorated with silver and gold. Carrying the War Club had never handled an axe of its like, for the people had no knowledge of metal. He shouted as he raised it aloft. His warriors laughed for happiness. He cried out the name of Kluskop, the Invincible, who had vanquished the Genuac power. What happened next is told in the Flaty Yarbok. The fighting commenced, and many of the Skraelings were killed. One man stood tall and handsome among them, and Karl Sefni reckoned that he must be their lord. A Skraeling had seized Odd's axe, and after studying it, he swung it at his companion beside him, who fell dead in a twinkling. The tall man then took hold of the axe, scrutinized it, and at last hurled it at a great distance out into the fjord. Then the Skraelings fled with all speed into the wood, and so was this happening concluded. What could carrying the war club have seen in the axe that made him do what he did? Did he see its metal spirit, its cold blue iron spirit? We will never know. And in any case, the entire story might never have happened. 
Eric's saga, which bears in many places the stamp of an accountant's steady soul, gives Freitas the sole credit for the victory over carrying the war club and his people, saying of the axe only this. The Skraelings discovered Odd, with his axe lying in the dirt beside him. One of them snatched up and swung it so that it bit deeply into a tree, and then each of them in turn essayed the sport. It was clear that they considered the axe a marvelous find, being in awe and wonder at its keenness. But now a Skraeling sought to cleave a rock with it, and the blade broke. Thereupon, thinking it worthless because it failed to conquer stone, they cast it down. So perhaps there was no spirit in the axe after all. Kespi atuxit, as the people said, here ends this story. But I am convinced that carrying the war club saw the fact of the axe peering out from its glittering smoothness, a fact that took hold of him and made him kill his enemy, dreaming of bad days, who had always spoken against him. That must have been the case because he had no need to kill him. Dreaming of bad days was gone by now. He had passed beyond the wide lakes. He had crossed the rivers. He had rushed through the empty valleys. He dissolved in the sky world. He rotted in the earth world. I fancy that when carrying the war club pulled the axe out of dreaming of bad days' breast and stood looking and looking at his own blue image, across which the red blood trickled, he saw himself grinning a grin of dead horse teeth, just as Ingyal, the evil worker, saw himself reflected in his daughter Asa. So carrying the war club saw himself growing deeper and deeper into death as he looked upon the shimmering surface of that axe like a lake of polished iron whose depths he could never see. What was inside the axe head? Inside was the thing that watched him. Inside was the thing that guarded him and caught him with iron claw hands and pulled the ice shirt down over his head and shoulders so that he felt cool and superior and needed nothing but to swing his axe so that it whizzed through the air with the speed of a war arrow and shone bluer and bluer and bluer than the sky and then thudded into some screaming softness. He had not wanted to kill dreaming of bad days. He had sincerely not intended it. Praying to Kluskop, he sent the axe spinning through the blue sky and down into the blue water where it whirled and dimmed and became gold and then green, and it vanished. And now carrying the war club, like so many others, is out of this saga. Sean, can you tell us a bit about these source texts? Because this is intrinsic to Seven Dreams as a project in here. Uh, at the micro level or the ground level, we're seeing an exact example of Bill's sort of adaptations. He states in the ice text, the introduction that it's predominantly the uh, Flady Yarbuck, so the Vinland sagas as we know them, the saga of the Greenlanders and Eric's saga. But I think it sort of extends beyond that to the Heimskringla, the Speculum Morgale, and then I believe there's a map as well that you were hoping to speak about. I, I think it's important. I, I mentioned it earlier, but to reiterate, the, the Vinland sagas, they aren't regarded quite very highly by literary scholars. For their literary merit, a lot of scholars kind of don't think that they're they're up to scuff. Um, that's a phrase. Uh, as some of the other sagas are, and the Vinland sagas are very much used by historians, and they're very much mined by historians, or at least traditionally so, because this narrative is incredibly important for so many different national identities. And so the Vinland sagas, even if they aren't literarily up to snuff, which is the right phrase, they are the most published on sagas by a fairly large margin. But of course, William Bowman knows this, um, and he did quite a bit of research. And what he found 
was that the Vinland sagas, just like any other saga, can't stand alone. Um, and you have to do so much other research kind of around the apparatus of the sagas in order to fully understand them. So he has, I think, 20 odd pages of footnotes at the end where he he references the specific manuscripts and the specific texts, among them all the ones that you mentioned. When we're dealing with medieval sources, what's quite interesting is that we're often dealing with individual sources. Um, this is obviously pre-printing press, right? Pre-Gutenberg's uh, printing press. So the sources that we're dealing with are almost all unique. For instance, Greinlander Saga, the Saga of the Greenlanders, we only have one source of, and that is in the Fatigea book uh, that Ryan mentioned earlier. Eric Saga Roida, Eric the Red Saga, we have two copies of from two different manuscripts, and they differ in and of themselves. We'll talk about that, I think, when we start talking about the Skrylings, because the description of the Skrylings are different in both of the two manuscripts, and one of them is often ignored in favor of the other one. The English translation is only based on one of them. So this is all to say that when we're dealing with the sagas, we're already dealing with multiplicity. We're already dealing with discrepancies between the sagas. We like to think that Norse mythology and Norse history is straightforward and linear. It's not. The stuff that we know about the Norse gods, for instance, Almost all the sources come from Christian monks writing about them hundreds of years later. So the Vinland sagas, for instance, are both written sometime, and people debate this, and I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of dating uh, because it's, well, it would be, we'd be here all afternoon. They're often dated to sometime in the kind of late 13th century, maybe 14th century, and they're preserved a couple hundred years after that. But they describe events that happen right around the year 1000. And the year 1000 is quite important. Uh, remember the year 1000 because that's the year that Iceland became Christian. So the sagas that we're reading about Eric the Red and Leif the Lucky and, and Freydis Eriksdottir are written at least, at the very least, 250 years after the events that they are describing. And of course, the, they weren't dealing with written sources. They were dealing with oral sources for the most part. So this is the equivalent of, say, us in 2023, writing down for the very first time the events that happened in 1773. This would be like us writing about the Revolutionary War and only dealing with oral sources. And of course, all this isn't to say that the studies about oral cultures and oral sources have kind of come a very long way in the past 40, 50 years. So we kind of trust oral sources a lot more than we perhaps used to. But what this really indicates is that these stories are super important to, again, these national identities. That's a great point. And I think the approach of using these sources and adaptation is, is very important. I very much liked the metaphor that William the Blind uses towards the beginning. It is so reflective of some of the broader ideas of space and identity that we're going to get into. He says in the first few pages that essentially he anthropomorphizes or corporealizes the text. The Flady Yarbach and the Greenland Saga, Eric the Red Saga are like his legs that allow him to climb the night cliffs of history. That idea of exploration as metaphor, the Vinland Saga is incorporated as a physical space to be navigated. You know, in terms of adaptation, then that allows him to focus on what he wants to because who does he center? He centers Freydis and Gudrid. 
And these are peripheral figures, largely in the sagas. I think probably Freitas more than Gudrid, but it's, it's interesting his points of focus because something we talked about, Sean, is that both in the sagas, but also in, in the Ice Shirt, it's surprising how small a role, how marginal Leif Erikson is, given his place in the history and in, like, I think, popular conceptions of history. It's almost comical the way Bill kind of just throws him to the side at one point and says, we're just going to get rid of Leif here. Yeah, and I think this like recentering on different people is going back to his kind of ethical stance when dealing with these sources. For instance, in in the scholarship, nobody talked about the Freitas episode where she bared her breast and smacked a sword against her breast. Everyone just ignored that until like 1980. They would just say the author was having a bit of fun there, and they would ignore it because again, these were mined only for historical detail. The Gudrid episode, where she very oddly sees another woman who also says that her name is Gudrid. Nobody talked about that. But one thing that again remains so important is this: is this search for Vinland, this dream of Vinland. As Ryan alluded to, we know that the, these journeys took place. We have archaeological evidence. Um, there's a place in Newfoundland and kind of the northern tip of Newfoundland called Lansa Meadows, where we have Viking homes and Viking artifacts, essentially Nordic homes and Nordic artifacts, I suppose. But for the longest time, there was this desire to find Vinland. And there is this very interesting source called the Vinland map. And it is this map that purports to show the earliest depiction of Vinland on a kind of world map. It purports to be, I think, from the 15th century. And it was unveiled to the public, I think, in 1957. So three years before they found Lansa Meadows, before they had hard archaeological data, they showed this map off. Um, and it's held at the Beinecke. It's still held at the Beinecke at, at Yale University. I went to see it just two or three months ago. And they published this massive book about it and all this different stuff to prove that Vinland exists. Because again, no one was really taking the, the literary sources as seriously as we might take literary or oral sources. This map, of course, though, is a forgery. It's on 15th century vellum, but the ink dates from the 20th century. We know it's a forgery. Right, right away, a bunch of medievalists were like, that map does not look right. That is not how they would have drawn a map in the first place, let alone all these other inconsistencies. It took Yale University until... I believe 2021, it might have been 2020, to finally publicly say that that map was a forgery. Only two years ago. To your point, isn't that the map that's on the cover art for the Penguin edition of the Vinland Sagas? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, but you know, this gets to an interesting point. Part of me cringes at, at bringing up the topic of postmodern, but I think it's a useful catch-all to talk about the idea of history as constructed narrative, which is something I subscribe to to use Joan Didion's phrase, stories we tell ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. It's obviously a fundamental truth that Bill recognizes, but intrinsic to what he's doing in The Seven Dreams, and I think across all of his fiction all, or all of his written works. Stepping back to the question of sources and the Heimskringla, I was kind of thrown off by the Vinland sagas really only appear in what, the last third of the book? He doesn't focus on Bjarni, Herjolfsson's visit or Leif. Thorstein and Thorvald are very minor in there. It's it's really that final trip with Carl Sefni and Gudrid and Freitas. And so I was surprised to find the first half of the book, first quarter of the book being the Heimskringla and the Bear Kings of Old Norway and Harold Fairhair. But it was talking about, again, this sort of sense of proto-history and mythology, the fog of time and how the Viking world such as it is, was constructing its own sense of self and also 
people of Eric's time, then looking back, you know, there's constant point of reflection where Eric is Eric the Red is talking about what shirt he'll put on and how the and then frequent mention of how the bear shirt has disappeared. So that idea of self-construction, both as individually and self-fulfillment, individual fulfillment, which I think is a constant theme throughout Bill's works, but then also how it's working on this sort of national level and and how a sort of national identity is constructed, made from whole cloth. Speaking of Bill's prescience as an author, and, and I'm constantly amazed when I'm reading him, things he's talking about, or subtext at least, is so salient to the sort of cultural conversations that we need to have and that we are having in 2023. Jordan, I think you had an, another text as well that you're going to bring to our attention. Yeah, and, it, and that it kind of fits into multiple things that you were both were saying. I mean, Sean, did, did you read all the back matter of Ice Shirt? Yeah, but all, all the different manuscripts that, that he's that he's yeah. dealing with and all, all the different sources. There's a point that he makes there that like kind of both of you are, of all the wonderful things you both just said, that you both picked up in a little bit in that he makes a point, And it's one of, the, one of those kind of like humorous bratty where, you know, it's really Bill and not like William the Blind that is coming through in the, in the stuff where he talks about whenever there's a text that is less valued by history or historians or academics, he always uses it. He actually emphasizes it more. And if there's two ways to look at things, he's going to not only bring in both, but he's going to emphasize the one that's been least popular. And I think that's the intention that clearly you've shown all these biases of academics and history and looking at texts in one way and, and disparaging one because it doesn't fit with the other or it doesn't fit these other narratives or the way we've it traditionally looked at a particular history, he's making the point of, um, and I think it's part of the ethics of what he's doing, is that in showing the messiness of history, the multiplicity of history, and how we only know that through a weird, messy multiplicity of texts, he's always going to stick up for the underdog in everything he does, even the texts and the histories. And so he's pointing that out quite often, even with the indigenous, the Native American stuff, where people say, this person thought this, this person thought that. And he's like, and I'm going to emphasize both, but particularly the one that's been least thought. And so he's doing that also in, in the Norse stuff, which is really nice. I mean, one of the reasons why I was never that interested in the Vinland sagas to bring something back is that I've just found them too short. And especially when I read like Njal's saga first, that's a 300-page substantial novel. The Vinland sagas, I'm like, this is like the Eddas, you know, this is like a, a little account of something and there's not that much there because I wasn't looking at it like line by line, what does each line mean historically and textually? That was just something I was thinking throughout what you were both just saying, is that he makes a note of that in the notes, that he's looking out for not just people, but how the people are represented by text and the kind of underdog texts having importance to us. Is that something you, you notice when going through those? I mean, do you agree with his choices on the, some of those? That's a good question. I mean, it's quite interesting because he has all these notes to like the Speculum Regale, or in Old Norse, the Koningsskutsjö, the King's Mirror, um, which isn't the text I would necessarily think to combine with the Vinland sagas. And I think that's one thing that he does quite interestingly. Um, as Ryan was saying earlier, th this use of Heimskringla, which means like circle of the world, is a history of the Norwegian kings. So it's very much this Orgiogentis, this origin of Norway. But it was written by an Icelander named Snorri Sturluson. And Story Sirleson, I, I think, is a really important echo of Volman or of William the Blind in some way, because this book begins with recounting Heimskringla and these, these characters like Harold Fairhair that Snorri tells us about. And Snorri was a historian, first and foremost. And then at the very end, the last page of the text ends with Story Sirleson dying. 
And Snorri Sorlsson is a very important figure because he kind of helped Iceland become a colonial state um, to uh, Norway. He very famously kind of sold out Iceland to Norway. And right after Snorri Sorlsson dies, Norway comes in and takes over. And that's the end of the kind of Commonwealth era of Icelandic history. And from then on out until 1941, when Iceland declares independence, Iceland is a colonial state. So I, I think there is this kind of prolonged echo with Snorri Sturluson and the, these kind of issues around colonialism and imperialism and how that's all related to the history writer. Two points that I want to make there based on what you said, Sean, is that you mentioned the, the translation of the Speckham Regale, the King's Mirror, and, and that makes sense aesthetically, I think. You know, ice mirror of our ideas. Mirrors are a frequently recurring image throughout how we see ourselves. And Bill's talking about how we see ourselves as the individual and how we see ourselves uh, as a society in relation to our ancestors and as a collective, as a, as a nation, if we want to use that term anachronistically. And then again, getting that idea of construction, storytelling, narrative, history as a story. Speaking of story, the novel ends talking, you know, we've had this, uh, as, as you've said, this brutal period of justice, Jordan, right? You know, reciprocity, a violent reciprocity. But what does he say about Snorri? Snorri tells us the story of Vinland as Wineland the Good. So mm -hmm. it's that idea of we are going to recapitulate or restructure or repurpose nostalgia. There's a quote at the end, no text from the past can stand on its own and be enjoyed without misapprehension by the modern reader. Mm -hmm. So our misreadings coupled with mediation and the intention of the history writer is something that is, is top of mind and, mm -hmm. and really a point of focus for this. And that's what's so great about that very last part before the first appendix that's still kind of part of the dream, wearing the ink shirt. And because the dates on that section is 1235 to 1988. And so it's to him finishing the book. And so it's Volman wearing the ink shirt as William the Blind, just like Snorri Sturluson is wearing the ink shirt. It's another identity we pull upon ourselves that has its own powers and limitations like all the other shirts have before this. And so it's like the perfect ending. I think this is getting back to sort of the point of my earlier question. I don't want to belabor it too much, but just how facile postmodernism can be as a descriptor. When I line up what we're talking about, and I'm not, I'm divorcing it from the more theory academic aspects of postmodern, but when we talk either about a long, complicated text or one that's sort of playing with this idea of the social construction of history, to me, when I recognize that definition, doesn't seem really any different than what scholars refer to when they talk about orality, right? Mm -hmm. And the idea of telling and retelling and adaptation, and we're going to take these stories and, you know, whether we're going to make them field guides, as I think Gisley Sigurdsson says, talking about orality and field reports and, you know, warning. Well, maybe we don't want to really go over there because it's a bit dangerous. So you might want to be on your guard if you're going to sail west. Ultimately, Bill is doing exactly what the saga writers did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's why Volman has always dodged the term postmodernism. And that's why in some of the definitions, the different definitions of postmodernism, why I've avoided it because he reads so much literature of the of the past, ancient world, mm -hmm. medieval, you know, anything that like he's realizing what he's doing is not that different. Yeah. What what is contemporary? I remember yeah, what, what like, contemporary writers are you and he's listing the tale of Genji, right? <laughs> like Well, no, I mean he spent the last two hundred years of, of yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> from this this interview. I mean, some some scholars talk about every age has 
pre-modern, modern, and postmodern inclinations within it, you know, and that those are just different trends. We can look at them like that. And so he is postmodern in the sense that humans have always been postmodern. <laughs> One of my favorite Volman moments, I'm in, I'm in college, I'm really into him, and I'm telling people about him, and I'm just captivated that someone just asked him to interview his favorite writers, and he just came down to saying, my two favorite writers are Hawthorne and Plutarch. And that was just probably one mode, one, you know, that he was in in like the mid 90s. Both of those sum him up pretty well, you know, and what they both do with history and fiction in relation to history and with like guilt and morality and ethics and all that both of them are doing. And it's exactly what you're talking about. We can interpret Herodotus yeah. as a postmodernist from these same angles. He's going to go around and talk to people and hear stories. and Yeah. <laughs> And, and he's saying their history, and some of them are accurate, and some of them are just field work, and some of them are, are myth, and that's what makes Herodotus so wonderful. And I know Volman likes Herodotus also. I think you're both uh, 100% correct. The definition of postmodernism as uh, uh, is kind of multifaceted, and I think we can find a lot of aspects of it in a lot of different places, including the medieval world. And in fact, not to self-promote, um, and in fact, I don't recommend you watch this video, but one of the very first videos that I made was reading medieval texts through a postmodern lens. And I talked about kind of like the interaction between these two. Um, and I, I note the sagas, the saga authors. And we have kind of medieval historians, people like Geoffrey of Monmouth, who is always playing with the narrative of history. John Mandeville. John Mandeville, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, uh, th th there's a moment in, um, in, in Geoffrey of Monmouth at the very beginning where he is retelling the history of the kings of Britain, essentially. Um, and, and he says that all of what he's about to say, he isn't actually writing it. He's just translating it. And he's translating it from this very old British book. Mm. Where is the book? Oh, I, I misplaced it. I lost it. So all of his kind of contemporaries were very annoyed with him, but he's clearly parodying them in some way. If you don't mind, there's, there's like two sentences in the preface to the ice shirt that speaks to this a lot. Readers are warned that the sketch maps and boundaries here are provisional, approximate, unreliable, and wrong. Nonetheless, I have furnished them. For as my text is no more than a pack of lies, they can do no harm. And so he is working with a, a history that is itself approximate and itself has gaps and stuff that he needs to fill in and that medieval historians needed to fill in as well. What I find interesting about the way Volman does it is there are these like layers of fictionality and these layers of filling in these gaps. There's one moment kind of in the middle of the book where he just says, he's talking about this character named Jorand, who's only, on the, only in here for like a page or two. And then it just says... What Yorin died of, I cannot tell, for there is a wormhole in that part of the manuscript. So this narrator can fill in hundreds of years of, of wormholes, right? Entire psyches of characters that we don't know anything about, but he can't fill in the wormhole in a manuscript. So like this back and forth between these two ideas of him having complete fidelity to these sources and then also making up all of this different stuff. I, I think is is very playful, and again, that's what the sagas do. The, the sagas are always making up stuff. Yeah, he's populating mm -hmm. the ink islands with the moss of his speculation. I think he puts mm -hmm. it something like that. That's that's to the point about William the Blind or the the writer of history. You know, it's telling us something about him where he chooses to focus and where he chooses not to. Mm -hmm. And you know, something that's interesting to me before we kind of move on to more stylistic discussions about the prose. I did want to talk a bit about where we see points of connection between this and some of the other work. This ties directly into what we've been talking about, where he chooses to focus and embellish and expand and exaggerate. And it's in keeping with his broader interests, of course, right? To me, the most compelling manifestation would be 
again, just individual characterization. And, and here it takes the mode of what he uh, frequently recurring motif that he refers to as the changing game, right? The idea of self-construction, identity, figuring out who we are. And this is present and recurring across all of the characters from the actual human beings to the cosmological sort of entities, deities, etc. Those all discernible Volmanian characterizations around failure, around self-hatred, around gender, around understanding oneself and one's sexuality. I, I think that's where I think I was struck most by what he was able to do with the saga, what he filled those wormholes in with. He filled them in with a lot of himself. So did we see any connections between the ice shirt and the broader corpus? Was there a coherence or dissonance between this and the other dreams or not? How did that those considerations impact our reading? Did we see any uh, sort of cognitive tethers between this and the other works? As I mentioned earlier, it seems like this dream sets up the others. And maybe this is a chance to read some of his original plan. You read this kind of put into print plan that he had for the seven dreams. And in this interview from 93 with Larry McCaffrey, he gives this, you know, spoken idea of, of how the seven dreams began. And this is where he talks about Ovid and the whole idea of metamorphosis. And it really sets us up well because he talks about this book in context of Afghanistan Picture Show and Rainbow Stories. He first writes Afghanistan, he's working on Afghanistan Picture Show. He's gone to a, a far extreme for otherness and the exotic. And then Rainbow Stories is him trying to turn his focus back onto home, back onto America and what he's seeing. He says, the simplest way to put it is that Rainbow Stories, I wanted to understand what America is like. The fascination I had with the exotic experience was also very much here. I wanted to look at lost souls and marginal people, and I wanted to help them in some way, as I try to do with uh, with Afghans. But so his experience of writing Rainbow Stories was to get him to realize that he still didn't quite understand America, where we are. So that leads to, to this, this whole project. He started originally with something a lot more close to Ovid's Metamorphosis, and that would be one volume. Changes of seven different periods in, in America. And then it, it got to this much bigger thing. His description here is, is really, really wonderful of, of what he's trying to do. Because he says, the first book of the series, uh, The Ice Shirt, describes people who came here around 1000 AD and encountered the Indians and how they tried to stay, but they weren't able to. And that he was very interested in Ovid's metamorphosis. And from Ovid, he got the idea of these kind of different ages of America. And this would be this kind of ice age. In the first dream, The Ice Shirt, the Norse began this process of degradation by introducing ice into Vinland. The other dreams carry on different aspects of this motif until we end up with the present and everything is kind of concreted over. He talks about each age being a little less good than the one before it. But the really beautiful part is this, this one paragraph here. So, so bear with it because it does answer what you're asking. Metamorphosis is one of the main activities of human beings. We're always trying to transform ourselves into things that we are not yet and may not ever become. We do this either because we're bored or unhappy with what we are or because we're satisfied or because we want to improve ourselves. But whatever underlying motivations are behind this, transformation is a central activity. A lot of creation myths, probably all creation myths, deal with this. In a way, history is basically a description of metamorphosis. As we go from myth to history, people lose a lot of their powers. Suddenly, we're no longer able to change ourselves into birds or gain superhuman powers. Or we can do these things, but only very rarely. But we're still able to change ourselves from one kind of person to another. The Ice Shirt is partly about that particular barrier between myth and history. 
In the old days, people could change into bears, or at least men could, and then suddenly that doesn't become possible anymore. We actually get into the ken of memory and history. People can imagine that there was such a thing, but whether or not it ever really happened, we will never really know. And then a little further later, he does get this line, whereas the characters in the ice shirt see some way of escaping from whatever they are, either by changing their locations and going to Vinland or becoming the sun or whatever, that may or may not be an illusion on their part, but at least it's their hope not to be fixed. I think that that kind of runs through then how he deals with many of the characters through the rest of the seven dreams, these kind of either aspirations to go other places or to be other things in these other places or where they are. That little insight to reread that, which I hadn't thought of in years while reading the ice shirt again, because there's that one King who can no longer change into a bear. He's like the first one that this happens to that he mentions in the ice shirt. Is it Harold? Who's trying to find his father's bear shirt, right? That his, his mother buried. Mm-hmm. And it's, he's, and I think he's described as the last king who who can't who can't transform anymore. Yeah, and that's how we live up to ideals, right? Because I'm thinking of Eric, then generations later, talking about, well, I can't put on the bear shirt. We can't do that anymore. But what does he do? And what does his daughter Freitas do? They can try to change themselves, and ultimately, they kind of debase themselves a bit through putting on the blue shirt or putting on the gold shirt metaphor for different attitudes or actions we adopt. Mm -hmm. One point I wanted to make here, um, and this is maybe, I hope I'm not getting up on my hobby horse here or or kicking kicking this horse when it's down or whatever the phrase may be, but this read to me like a much stronger attempt to rewrite You Bright and Risen Angels because it is a return to the fabulism and the fantastique and the digression and pleonasms and indulgences of You Bright and Risen Angels. But I think at this point, Volman is just such a much stronger writer. It's funny because he's writing all these books at the same time, essentially. But as Jordan, you pointed out, he just kind of sits down and he goes. And this is that great period of production and output where he's, again, carpal tunnel syndrome because he's writing four or five books at this point, you know, the mid 80s to the early 90s. He had three different publishers or something to cover his output. He's just more precise in his imprecision and his indulgences. Ultimately, it's form fitting function because, and this is where we pull in Sean's area of expertise, Viking proto history and mythology is just a much more appropriate forum for this sort of writing. And this sort of style, there there are so many points, small superficial things like Amor Tortak's fortress reminded me of the Kuzbu at Ice Cave or, you know, Amor Tortak versus Kluskop, I think being the author versus Big George, right? Over and over, you must fight and let this be our playing field. The recurring cycle of creation and destruction with Freitas's sort of search for Idrisil and, and the destruction of Idrisil. This was just less the two-dimensional absurdity of the cartoon and more of that ornate carpentry of Eric's plank boards, the sort of beautiful aesthetics and renderings and shifting metamorphosis, as you call it. Who's the grape taster, right? And those boards, we'll have to see. I mean, he talks about them actually in this interview kind of together because they were very current books in 93. I was, you know, noticing the same kind of stuff like blue shirt to blue globes, you know, that there is this kind of relation there. I mean, eventually becoming the white shirt, you know, and Mr. White. I mean, you have this that very symbolic connection there, both kind of having the feeling of the monolith in 2001 to me at some points, you know, the way it's referred to and the kind of symbolic nature of it. We know one of the reasons why I think last time we talked that I said this is when 
he really takes the next step of Raider is, and you're kind of comparing it and you're kind of touched on that in your comparison is that other than the seven dreams, Volman has always said he doesn't plot. Like he doesn't plan a plot. He starts and he just keeps going. I mean, and that's why some people like to complain about the lack of plot or things like that. But it's the seven dreams are the only times that he has to do that because he's bound by history. He's bound by the narrative as he finds it. And I think that's why this book is the beginning of him getting much better as a writer because it imposes limitations. I don't think his books are too long. I don't think all the people say he'd do better with an editor, of course, because people somehow think an editor only cuts, you know, and like doesn't add more <laughs> or something like that. He edits a lot. I don't have a problem with, with length and things like that. It's having the limitations of having to deal with text, having to be an ethical responsibility to the sources, the people of the sources, and that he that there are parameters. Ultimately, this is not a very long book. It's just barely over 300 pages of the primary text. But it gives him confines, parameters, limitations that he has to like do particular things in. And I think and and he has to like spend so much time with the sources. And you write in Risen Angels, it reads like someone who is trapped at a computer because he can't drive home at his job and he's just gonna just let it go. And it's just gonna come out of him. And it's just going to be wonderful. And he's just going to keep blowing up each sentence, larding them, as Joyce would say, but in the kind of low Tremont way that Volman does. And in this, I mean, he stylistically needs to try to stick more to these saga writers. Kennings are something he can play around with. And so the kind of the self-imposed limitations, I think, are this great thing for him to kind of really excel as a writer and do all the great research that his intellect and discipline can do, to read every single thing, to go to every location, and to try to be, again, as ethical and appropriate to even locations. And he, and he gives us those notes that, like, this place probably looked different in 1000 CE, and so I've made it look like this other location in the 80s when I went there because it sounds more like what it looked like. The fact that he has to do all of that and conform to that, I think, is what makes this not only great, but is the beginning of him doing such greatness. And I know, Sean, you might not have read some of these other dreams, but by the time we get to like something like Dying Grass, which might be his greatest book, there's less of the kind of veering away from subject. There's certainly more of him just being enraptured in subject. Because one of the things that everyone always brings up about the ice shirt is the San Francisco transvestites episode, which is a very small one. And it's not even as postmodern as all the stuff of him and his friend Seth in like 87 going to these places. His field work and reportage that's also put in here, that's woven in here, that's more outer textual than even the San Francisco, you know, than the, the transvestite moment. And I think he's he does that less and less with each dream. I mean the Rifles also is an exception, but like Fathers and Crows and Argyll and Dying Grass, which I think are the three greatest of, of his dreams in some ways, particularly Dying Grass, it's much more in the subject itself, and there's less of Bill, and there's less of contemporary world than, than I think even in, in this one. When we get to the discussion of gender and, and the female characters, that, that was a point I wanted to hit on. Yeah, I, I think I was in the same boat as you, Jordan, where before I read the book, everyone talked about the Viking colonization of the New World. And then there was always that sort of footnote, asterisk, quote unquote, transvestites in San Francisco, 1987. And it was kind of always just, yeah, it's, yeah, it's two, well, two, it's two pages, first of all, but it's pointed out as like this digression and it's absolutely not. It's Mm -hmm. absolutely woven into the warp and weft of the thematic arguments that he's making about gender and performance. 
that is a substantive thread throughout the entire oh, yeah. novel. One of the strongest. Yeah. yeah. So like literally the uh, metaphor is putting on a shirt, putting on a yeah. clothing <laughs> of yeah. a different yeah. identity. So, exactly. So so I'm oh, I was so struck by that being pointed out as like some sort of dissonant note when it was one of the most harmonious thematic notes in the entire novel for me. To get back to the point I was maybe trying to make earlier, it's just that this is just the perfect forum for for his strengths. It, it's it's really allowed him to frankly weaponize all of his just tremendous gifts as a writer at this point, which have been hard won because as I've said, he's been writing all these things concurrently. He's writing hundreds, thousands of pages at this point. And so that investment is starting to really pay dividends because his facility with craft, with being able to take source and theme and style and put these through the loom and come up with a beautiful shirt, right? It's just an incredible example of what he can do at his best. To throw this to Sean, and Sean posted on Instagram, you know, your your research, you know, getting ready for this. And you posted other books that I didn't know about that I guess are also fictional adaptations of Friedrich's story and, and some other stuff. How does Volman compare then? Since this is kind of also like what we're talking about in here, how does how he's approaching this history compare to other people who have done the similar things? I think this goes off of what, what you're both saying, that Volman here is confined by history, but what sets him apart is he takes these gaps and is able to kind of use those rhetorical spaces to bring in modern issues, like the trans characters, and see kind of the, these prolonged echoes across time and, and space. Because, like, for instance, the, the two main characters of the ice, ice shirt are undoubtedly Gurfritha's Kodavianna's daughter and Freitas, Eric's daughter. Both of those characters are completely ignored by the scholarship, and they're both kind of completely ignored by most adaptations of these sagas. At least, again, I don't read too many kind of modern adaptations. And in fact, there's no evidence outside of the two Vinland sagas that Freitas existed. She very well could be a literary creation. Whereas Gudrid, we know, is a historical figure because she has all these daughters, sons and daughters that become bishops later on. But so by focusing on Freitas, he finds this very small gap and is able to kind of insert so much into this world and have it not feel anachronistic. South of the white line of pack ice, the sea was specked with swirls of ice powder like a pebble beach. The ice formed dazzling white polygons bunched together so that in appearance the form they made was similar to that of a Nevada desert salt wash, except that one could see the white jigsaw pieces undulating in the waves, and the ocean could sometimes be seen between the cracks. The distinction between sea, sky, and ice was confused. Everything was blue and white, blue and white. There were so many broken patterns. This was Ganunga Gap, the abyss where the nine worlds had been created from fire and ice, for to the south was Muspelheim, the kingdom of fire, whose sparks rose up to make the stars, and to the north was Niflheim, the kingdom of cold. The rime breath met heat breath in Ganunga Gap and melted into drops from which the first being, evil Emir the frost giant, was born. His offspring killed him. The sky was made from his skull. And in Halulaland I have seen the mountains created from his bones. Ganungagap endured. It was now the channel to the sea called Mara Oceanum that enclosed the entire world in its ring. 
and at the bottom of Mara Oceanum lay Loki's hateful offspring, the serpent of Midgard, that stretched around from the world with its tail in its mouth, waiting for the bad day when Fenrir, the wicked wolf, was going to swallow the moon and the troll child would destroy the sun so that the sunshine became black. And the serpent of Midgard lashed the waves with its hideous tail that was longer than all the continents. And the black waves rose and eagles screamed in the wind scream. And the world tree Yggdrasil creaked and groaned. And then the men from Muspel came sailing across the sea with Loki as their steersman. And Loki was laughing and laughing very awfully with tears of poison crawling down the seer tracks in his cheeks and in his eye sockets were black and blind because the gods had tied him to a rock beneath another serpent that spat acid in his eyes for he had murdered balder the good so that no punishment could be terrible enough for him but now the murderer was free and he was going to murder the world i think this is uh excellent time to pivot to a discussion while we're talking about his intentions and execution about style. And I'd be interested to hear from both of you what you appreciated or maybe what you didn't, uh, critiques you may have of the, the prose itself and Bill as a stylist and the aesthetics of the writing. I'd like to hear you a shot on this because in some ways he's trying to, I think, faithfully adapt some stylistic things from the sagas. But then, of course, either he's trying to not always be entirely faithful, or also he just can't help but be Volman on some of them. And those are the moments where I kind of feel like it's a little uneven, where he still kind of slips into the influence of Lotremont upon him, you know, and that these sentences have to be exploded. And that's why I think he's he's gets better over time and in every way that, like, you mentioned, you know, um, the last last stories and other stories, and I love that book so much. And the, the Norwegian stories in that book are much more sparse, gentle, minimalistic, very precise and crisp, and not the maximalistic sentence mm -hmm. prose that he just couldn't escape, I think, in his early career. There's some very gentle, perfect, you know, sentences here, but there's also so many that are bigger and multiclausal. And There's almost nothing further from the saga prose than modern novels. The sagas, their prose style is, is sparse. They're minimalistic in so many ways. And you're forced to kind of infer motivation before someone kills someone. It'll just say like, and then Thorfinn picked up his axe and killed him. And you're left to you, the reader. And this is why I love the saga so much. You, the reader, are left to do so much of the work. Hmm. And so that doesn't really fly in modern novels, right? In kind of modern kind of sentimental novels, never mind maximalist novels. So I did admittedly find his prose to be a bit uneven at times because you can tell that he's trying to mirror the saga prose in some instances, but at the same time, he can't help himself. I mean, you, you can't really tell a modern story in, in saga prose. As far as I know, of the people who kind of rewrite these sagas in the modern world, very few people can capture the kind of sentence level writing of the sagas. There are a few Icelanders who, who do it effectively. I think Schoen does it um, effectively in, in some ways. But again, I, I think what he does so well is capture the kind of worldview, the ideologies of these people. And he's able to make it so the prose doesn't feel entirely anachronistic. Um, he's not trying to just mirror it and copy it. He could probably do that if he wanted to, but he's not trying to do that. And I think when he sets that aside and just does his Volman stuff that he does, I think that's where this book shines. I think when he's trying to give a wink and a nod to the reader who has read these sagas, I think that occasionally falls flat, and I, I would assume that it would fall a little bit flatter 
if you're unfamiliar with the sources that he's using, like the moments where a, a character disappears and he'll just say, and this character is out of the saga. That is a completely commonplace thing in the sagas, but it doesn't feel right here. So yeah, I, I think I, I think it's a bit uneven, though I think for the most part, again, his pro style is able to capture the kind of larger ideologies, the larger worldview that many of these characters would have had. And how about you, Ryan? I mean, you've read so much Volman. Where do you, <laughs> you where do you feel like differences in this text? I loved it, I have to say. I feel like this book just worked and there was enough of a balance. I didn't find so many notes that didn't work for me. To Sean's point, when a character would leave the story, he kind of does that throughout his other books too. I think it's something he likes to do. He just kind of likes to go, oh, that person's done. I, I think I mentioned in the first episode, he likes to change up the rhythm and have those moments of brevity and, and quickness and sharpness. And I think the, the strongest instance I've found is in Fathers and Crows when he's there's a several page description of a question back bar and then he gets you with an incident of sexual violence that happened near it and it just sucker punches you it's definitely not as successful as that but i think that's part of why he's drawn to that oh and this person just ah leaf leaf erickson's out of the story this character never appears again in terms of style overall i think probably the thing that drew my attention the most is self-evident you read about this book, you listen to commentary on this book, reviews, critiques, criticism, and you're always going to hear, for the landscapes around us is but a shadow of the landscapes inside us. This idea of personal interiority rendered into natural space, also juxtaposed with a natural space being anthropomorphized or or corporealized. And there's so many instances of this. I'll try to just grab a few here. The fjords grin and have teeth. Leif Erikson letting his idleness travel up long blue inlets. Poplars shook their heads violently. There's this exquisite rendering of what he calls Freitas' soulscape as this boggy marshland. He writes, Half of the time the marshland is covered by the sea, and the water is as the weather is, but one cannot see Freitas' underlying nature. But as the tide is out, we may walk further and further inside Freitas, you think that you have put this muddiness behind you, but you know that you still are not and never will be away from it. Green fjords recede like memories. Boulders have faces. A ship parts the sea like a fat under a knife. There's so many instances of this. And I, you know, I, I never felt a moment where it felt try hard or contrived. It was a really beautiful literary conceit that carries on throughout the dreams. This is probably the central sort of aesthetic recurrence is, is again, this idea that we both form and are informed by our space and our place and the world around us. There's another point I wanted to make, which you did raise just briefly a few moments ago, Jordan, which is Kenning's. It is a very Volman thing. Correct me if I'm wrong, anyone, but what they really present here as is sort of these portmanteaus or neologisms where he's slamming two words together. There's a brilliant lyricism to them. I loved their construction. So what I started doing is I started writing them down every time I saw them because I loved them. I love just the feeling of them. And he does them throughout other books. I've seen them. He likes this, but he's never done it to the extent that he does it here. What worked for me and the more that I thought about it and my own sort of headcanon around it is that if we think about the ice shirt 
and the dreams is a form of translation, not literal language translation, but trying to connect two times and two sets of people, this idea of self and other chirality that we see throughout. And we think about the distance between ourselves and the Viking world, so to speak. It's like he's slamming these two things together and the Kennings come across as sort of a crude attempt to render that linguistically. Crude in the sense that I liked that it kind of almost doesn't work in several instances. I'll just read some, but there's so many throughout the text. So I hope I won't uh, exhaust your patience with me as I just read all the ones that I wrote. It's like a paragraph. Sea sky, ice self, night forests, dream hopes, dream rumors, moss islands, dream snow, mirror seas, eye doors, wind songs, cloud sea, ocean sea, Cliff foreheads, dazzle arrows, shield hopes, cloud ship, frost breath, dream cows, whirlpool lives, dream shirts, bird clowns, cloud knife, water horizon, ice life, sea peaks, ice walls, wind sea, wind songs, storm scream, snow shadows, cloud sea, snow shoulder, Waterfall stairs, sky shoes, beauty circle, ice breath, map sails, ice echoes, heart scream, shame light, strife pages, life fear, cloud light, witch woe, death kiss, heart scored, mountain teeth, ice lights, cloud roads, wind breaths, wave biter, axe music, heart strokes, Self-light, ice teeth, bone biter, wound gasher, leaf hands, leaf jaws, leaf mouth, tree wrecks, darkness horror, darkness terror, corpse dew, cold knives, cold fire, rotting light, death fire, war flowers, womb land, strife lust. And just as a point of comparison, I wanted to read a sentence from the royal family, one of my favorite passages towards the beginning, just in the opening few pages, when Tyler and Brady are driving through San Francisco. And and this is written 10 years later, at least, and we still see the persistence of Kennings in his writing. They ooze down Hyde Street, waiting to breast the current of lights whose source spring was a single rectangle of yellow high above the corner. Then there were yellow market lights, gold lights, apartment lights, and lady lights issuing from a hotel awning and its grating, and sex light coming from the girl against the wall. I love that. I love that list that you put together. What I'm hoping that maybe Sean can even help us with is how many of those Old Norse kennings have we just kind of absorbed into English naturally that we use without even knowing they come out of Kennings? Because I mean, my first big novel that came out, and wind will wash away, there's a whole lot of wind symbolism. And I was such a maximalist in love with Volman and Melville at the time that that read everything associated with wind that I could. And of course, you know, window is from Old Norse. Windoga? Windoga? I mean, it's wind eye. Is, is the origin of it. And like just hearing all these wonderful cuttings that and I read, but like Ryan putting them together like that, it just I wonder how many of them become this thing that we now have that we don't even notice anymore. Yeah, the, the Kennings throughout are fantastic. There are these moments where Volman is able to 
gesture at the form of the sagas, of the prose style, but also be creative. It's actually interesting. I, I was just checking because I, I didn't remember uh, in the Vinland sagas themselves, there isn't any skaldic verse, which is quite odd. In most sagas, which are written in prose, the characters often speak verses extemporaneously. And it's actually quite interesting because a lot of these skaldic verses, we can linguistically date to the 10th century when the characters uh, are, themselves are living. So a lot of the skaldic verses are original, so to speak, whereas the sagas are written much later. But the thing about the skaldic verses is that there are these moments for these very like poetic descriptions and these moments where we get this very strange, strange for readers of the sagas, interiority into the characters. We often don't get characters' thoughts, but they will occasionally, like Hamlet, just break out into soliloquy and they'll speak in verse. So when I was reading the, the, all the various kennings in here, there aren't many that I recognized as like immediately Old Norse. Old, a lot of Old Norse kennings uh, are very mythological in tone. There'll often be references to larger stories, kind of mythological stories or legendary stories, whereas Volman uses them much more to kind of embed the natural world into his sentences. What's interesting, too, is that the natural world is so kind of absent from so many of the sagas. We often think of like Norway and Iceland and Greenland as being these like remarkably beautiful places, but we never get really descriptions of them in the sagas. In fact, the Vinland sagas themselves are kind of exceptional for how much they describe the natural world as they're describing these journeys. Yeah, I really liked his use of kennings because again, they, in a slant way, related directly to the style that so many of the sagas take up or the, the style that so many, even old Germanic stories were told, right? Beowulf is rife with kennings. And I think that was a way for him to kind of see the opportunity to imbue this world with more kind of poetic beauty in, in a way that a lot of people don't give the sagas enough justice for, because it's really only in the skaldic verses that we get these profound metaphors that are kennings. So many of them just seem like original Volman kennings for you that he's playing around in, in these tropes? As far as I could tell, yeah. There's a German volume, I forget the guy's name, who did it from like the early 20th century. That's just a list of every single kenning in Old Norse. And it's only in German. So I, I haven't read through them all, but I didn't recognize many of them, but they felt Nordic. They felt Old Norse. And I think that's that's like an important thing that Bowman's able to do in this book is while he's not always drawing specifically on a source, it feels like he is. And I think many modern adaptations aren't able to do that in a way that Volman is. And I, I don't know if he'll ever actually listen to this, but if he does, I think he'd probably like to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll drop it onto a USB yeah. stick yeah. and mail it to him. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe he'd want to hear these things one day. But I think particularly like in situations like this, he would be very polite to uh, to Ryan and I, but really only want to talk to Sean, I feel like. You know, that, like <laughs> he, would, he would go straight to you and ask about your your, your studies. I was with him once, and, and a friend of a friend was there who, had, who just kind of came along because they were kind of intrigued. It was a reading of, of Volman's stuff, and the guy turned out to be an exterminator. Like, he was the only person that Bill really wanted to talk to. <laughs> like, like, the literary people, eh, you know, he, he knows what we we're into. But, like, this guy who, like, he's like, what kind of animals do you get? What's the most common one that you could pull out of? You know, like, he'd want to know um, what you think about all this, I imagine. I get the sense that it's, that curiosity is just part of his personality, but also that's sort of intrinsic to the strength of his books is, is that he spends that time 
researching and then imbuing or i guess constructing that as a as a sort of superstructure to really develop what i guess discourse worlds is probably the term right because he goes so far in depth to build uh, his knowledge base in order to maybe have that in the background or have that as i'm going to get back to corporealizing text like a skull atop blouser so does you know bill's research serve as the skeleton for these novels i like that discourse worlds Probably what I've been looking forward to most on this episode was the chance to talk about our two main characters and Bill's female characters more broadly. Just to set some context, we of course know that he identified writing women as as something that he struggled with particularly early on and, and one of the reasons um, for his patronizing sex workers was an opportunity to speak with women in real life and kind of get a better sense of who they are as people in order to write them more credibly. So as we've mentioned, the two protagonists of the ice shirt arguably are Freydis Eric's daughter and Gudrid Fjordborn's daughter. I think I got that right. <laughs> We're close enough. Nailed it. <laughs> getting, the thumb, getting the thumbs up from Sean, <laughs> so I'll take it. I just wanted to talk about these two characters, what we thought of them, and how do we see Volman's rendering of female characters and these characters in particular within the ice shirt? I think one thing that a lot of, and and just speaking kind of more towards these characters in the Vinland sagas themselves, perhaps just for a moment, most scholars have just ignored these two characters, but Eric the Red Saga is called Eric the Red Saga, but I mean, it's really Gudrid's saga. She's, she's really the main character in so many different ways. And Freydis really takes center stage at more than, in more than one uh, moment. One thing that I think a lot of people who come to the sagas are surprised about are the female characters. They're very often pretty well wrought. They're often quite active, but you often have to kind of squint in order to see them properly. We often kind of get hints that the women characters are actually like doing stuff, but we're never we're never really focused on them directly. I think one thing that's really interesting that Volman did is that in, I forget which saga uh, it is, it might be Grindelenda uh, saga, um, there's a moment where it says something like, people were telling Thorfinn Karlsefni to go to Vinland, and Gudrid loudest among them. And it's just that small moment that Volman then takes to really make Gudrid the, the pioneer of these voyages, the, the, the one who's really telling everyone, All right, we have to go. And then it's often talked about, uh, Vinland's often talked about as Gudrid's land rather than uh, Thorfinn Karlsefni's. And we kind of get this minimizing of the male characters in some interesting ways. I mean, Thorfinn Karlsefni, whose nickname, by the way, Karlsefni just means like manly man. He is very much background to Gudrid in the ice shirt. And I think that the saga indicates, again, it kind of indicates that this might be the case, but we have to kind of squint in order to see that. But Volman sees that as an opportunity to then go, okay, what are these women really doing? How are they really taking charge of, of these moments? So I think Freitas is disturbing and horrifying in so many different ways, but she's active in a way that we occasionally, again, we don't quite see, though it's hinted at in a lot of the source material. I've got the Vinland saga, the Paulson and Magnuson translation. In the first one, in the Greenland saga, what's so amazing is that this is a wonderful footnote because when she's telling uh, Thorvard 
what to do. She just threatens with divorce. And so the footnote is letting us know that under Icelandic law, women had equal rights in marriage and contained a divorce. You have that in Islam also, you know, it's in the Quran. And this whole scene of her, when she murders the two brothers, then she goes and murders all the other women that are left. I imagine just Volman reading that would just be like, this is an amazing character. Why is she so marginalized? She's the bastard daughter of Eric. This is wonderful stuff. I haven't actually gone back to my reread of the Finland sagas of where there's the whole episode with her slapping her breasts for the indigenous. But I mean, I think just those two moments, Volman reading that going like, yeah, all these dudes are Viking dudes. Sure. But like her and Gundren, why wouldn't he head towards those characters? You know, and it's just kind of ridiculous, the, the lack of emphasis on them by others when you see moments like that. There was another book that you had posted, though. I mean, has someone else written a novelistic version of her? You well, I think this was the, the article you were reading about Freydis, which quotes from the skirmish where Freydis slaps her breast with the swords as an epigraph. Okay, okay. yeah. Uh, there's a book by um, a popular historian called Nancy Murray Brown called The Far Traveler, because uh, uh, Gudrid, much later, was known as Vithrilov, Far Traveler. And so she, she kind of had this legend kind of built up around her because she traveled from everywhere from North America, Canada, all the way to, to Rome mm-hmm. as a nun at, at the end. Even in big epic sagas like Njal Saga, two of the most interesting characters in that saga are the wives of the two pro- protagonists because they're, con- they're kind of constantly feuding with each other. The, the two male characters, Njal and Gunnar, are like best friends and they hang out all the time, but their wives hate each other. And they often like send assassins to go kill each other's slaves and stuff. But we see that in the ice shirt on the main stage where it's really the feud between these two women that is really driving a a wedge between all the different factions in Vinland. And this almost certainly was the case. Women did have dominion over the houses and could kind of encourage their male counterpart to act. Women in Old Norse are often called wetters. They egg people on. They wet the blade of their male counterparts by encouraging them or by insulting their masculinity mm-hmm. and saying, you better go do something about them. And we, we see that here. But I think what is so interesting is how he just flips that around and makes the male characters move into the background and centers the feud between Gudrid and Freydis. Because again, the Vinland sagas touch on this. It's background there, whereas here it's foregrounded. And that's the same kind of thing that the whole project is doing in that we know it's kind of like Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. We know the conqueror's history. And so he's trying to bring out the relief of the indigenous that are in these texts. We don't know a lot about the Arctic Inuit except from these little bits talking about the Skraylings in, in, you know, in these, these epics. And so he's doing the same thing with the women, right? We, these are texts written by men, mostly about men, but the women are there. So he's trying to also bring out the relief. We can make the metaphor. That's what he's doing in his photography. I mean, that's you know what he's doing throughout his whole project. These marginal figures that are there that need to be shown. Toni Morrison. That's her, that was you know her big project, and she talks about reading through American literature and finding you know the black people, the African American, pulling them out of text where they they're always there, but they're they're this kind of undercurrent or subtext. And Volman in this project is bringing the subtext to the foreground. And so whether mm-hmm. it's the indigenous themselves or, or the women of the conqueror. And I love that he's justifying her monstrosity with this myth that's shared by both in a way, the, the blue shirt. Amor Tortak. So this is really, for me, the richest vein to mine in this text. This is where I found myself writing the most notes. And interestingly enough, as a point of comparison, it just was 
fascinating to me or our last episode was on the rainbow stories and what image stood out to me there was Virginia behind the peep show glass and that idea that there is such a distance between Volman as a writer and being able to, he could only understand women through exteriority. He couldn't access their inner lives and what an absolute difference and the opposite end of the spectrum here, where again, there's just that real credible amazing sense of interiority to both of these women. I'll start with Gudrid because I think that's where Sean started. We have these two poles, self and other, and Gudrid and Freitas, these sort of polar opposites. Gudrid is adopting more traditionally feminine or Christian roles of service. And that's tied into sort of critiques of the male gaze, that idea of, of service to others, male entitlement to women. Her father tells her, you should be grateful for the chance to please. And one of the most fascinating scenes and one of the most powerfully written and one of the most sharp critiques of the male gaze and of Bill's own fetishization of women is this, this scene where Gudrid and Thorfinn go just for a day on their own. There's this moment of intimacy and they're on a beach and she starts talking about beauty. And I'm, I'm going to read it now. Um, it's not too long, but I just think it's really indicative of the subjectivity of beauty, interrogating the male gaze, particularly a female experience of objectification. Beauty is a strange thing, Gudrid replied at last, in a rather low tone. Men have been telling me all my life that I have it, but what is it? Look at that bird in the sky. And Carl Sefney, gazing where she pointed, saw a pretty black bird with white wings. And then as Gudrid said, now how much would that bird be to your mind if someone cut off its wings with an axe? That would be an ill deed, said her husband. Yes, an ill deed, said Gudrid calmly. And ill-looking that bird would be without wings, how black and ugly and beaked and clawed, like a troll. And Carl Sefney said nothing, and Gudrid went on. Sometimes I'm afraid my luck is too good. Husband, would you like my face as much if Freitas strangled me in my sleep? How much would you care for me then? Beautiful you may be, said Carl Sefney, but those are ugly words to utter. Let us hope they never come to pass. You know that I dislike Freitas as much as you do, but it would be better for both of us if you refrained from saying such things without cause. Oh, now you find me heavy to bear, laughed Gudrid. But it was you whom I thought so interested in the subject of beauty and to think that was only my first lesson to you. My second lesson is that people often think something beautiful because they do not understand it. Do you like that sweet bird song? And Carl Stephanie listened and smiled at the bird music that came from somewhere near them. And Gudrid said again, Do you like it? And Carl Stephanie said, Well enough. Then Gudrid shook her head sadly, but her husband thought somewhat falsely and pointed to a little brown bird, almost like a mouse that was cheeping behind her in the grass. And Carl Sefney saw that a green snake with a white stripe along its back had put its head in the nest hole to eat the bird's eggs. And now, having finished that operation, it was eating the bird. Carl Sefney saw that the bird music was a bird scream, and at last the snake had crushed the bird into a ball of twitching, blood-furred flesh that it could swallow so it gaped its jaws and entombed the bird in itself. And then the snake whipped itself away from that empty place and hid beneath the waxy orange cups of flowers. There we have Freitas, Gudrid said. And Carl Sefney, 
meditating like a monk in the recesses of reason, wondered now what snake or bird his own wife might be. To interrogate the idea of beauty and beauty standards and the experience of women, and, and, and Gudrid is particularly perceptive to the role, you know, there's constant mention in the saga, or not constant mention in the saga, there is mention in the sagas about her beauty, and there's a real focus on it here around her hair, around her face. And so, and then that gets juxtaposed against Freitas and then the indigenous later. But I just thought that was just a really fascinating moment and indicative of Volman's growth of empathy as a writer and his ability at characterization. Also, just in comparison between her and Freitas, she's referred to as unblinded, I think, relative to William the Blind. And somehow being unblinded makes her able to be manipulated into locating Idrisil in Vinland and because she could love. So being unblinded is somehow the ability to love. That ties into Freitas and Freitas being, you know, one of my favorite Volman characters, I think, at this point. And to Sean's point, well, yes, she is horrifying. I do feel compassion for her because ultimately Bill characterizes her as a refinement or evolution in his sort of down at heel protagonist. She read like a reification, as he calls it, of Bug or the young man, marked by loneliness, disaffection, abuse. Centrally and most saliently to her actions throughout the text is this concept that he, I believe he talked about with you, Brian Risen Angels which is the idea that ethical misconduct, evil, if you want to be reductive and call it that, springs from an unfulfilled desire for love. And I think we see that based in the source text as he, he's kind of extrapolated. She's a bastard daughter. So, you know, we see, see her relationship with Thoshild, which is very abusive or at least emotionally abusive, we could say. That's her, what's what draws her to Amor Tortak, right? He kind of makes this devil's bargain of I'll love, no one else will love you, but I'll love you in my own way, this sort of conditional love. That turns into love of the self, or an attempt at the love of the self. I thought it was just this interesting moment when it's her wedding night and he makes mention of how she just goes out and masturbates. She's not spending her wedding night with her husband. Here's another brief quote about Frederis and her desire for love. She was so sick to her heart of everything. Her grief was as green as Greenland, exploded in all directions. Like a Greenland meadow bounded by low sharp ridges that cut into other meadows and went on and on dully into the ice. How she hated Vidland, she prayed for its black dead decay. So again, that idea of the desire for love becomes corrupted. She's, she's, grie she's grief-stricken by wanting to feel desire, to be desired, to feel compassion and love towards the other. If we talk about intergenerational trauma or these sort of transmissions of racism, which we'll get into in a little bit, it's almost like a bequest because we see Eric's family is sort of marked by failure. Eric is, you know, he's referred to Wolf's Head, right? He, he's sort of driven out of Greenland. He's driven out of, he's driven to Iceland, right? He's so he's constantly um, kind of on the run. He's exiled frequently. And this travels on through Freitas's avarice. And, and also speaking of the men which are decentered on the periphery, I think Thorstein, there's these two moments that really touched me. One was his kind of hopes for, and we're getting back to the male gaze now, and sort of sense of male entitlement towards women. He talks about Gudrid. He says, she made him feel that he was about to do or be someone more infinitely wonderful than he could ever imagined. 
but she could not help him play the changing game. And that idea of men looking and being possessive of women and particularly beautiful women to tell them who they are and to give them self-definition, to achieve a sort of status within a particular conception of masculinity. And then following that, there's this really sad moment. It's during their marriage ceremony and there's been so much talk about Gudrid's hair. As her wedding gift, he gives her a hairpin and she pins up her hair and Thorstein thinks to himself, seeing the change in her, he was grieved because he loved her hair and felt that it was his fault that she must put it away. There is that sort of secret desire on her part, the frost seed, as it were, of her evil is this desire for love that is never really returned to her. And so that becomes an appetite for destruction, uh, both herself in her bargain with Amor Tortak and her quest to bring the frost to Vinland to destroy Idrisil. I, I think there's kind of this connection between his exploration of gender and his exploration of monstrosity. And I think this is something that he's pointing out the sort of fallacy in the reader, at least again, traditionally, in that the first hundred pages of this novel is all about these berserkier, right? Th th these men who don bear skins or wolf skins and, and literally at, at times transform into animals and their animalistic rage and, and, and their desire for vengeance and killing. And then much later, we get this woman who is, like you said, incredibly sympathetic, incredibly empathetic, but who also does these kind of terrible things. And I think implicitly, he's asking us perhaps why we look at one and see a monster and we look at the other and see a badass warrior in some way, because this is very much the way they were tra traditionally perceived, right? We see men turn into bears and we go, that's really cool. And then in Freitas's biggest moment of violence, what does she do? She pulls down her shirt and, and shows her breast and slaps it with a sword. She displays her femininity for all to see. And that is what scares people away, right? She's like eight months pregnant at the time as well. So she's very pregnant and bearing her breasts. And that's what scares away the opposing army. It isn't the fact that she has a sword. It's the fact that she's showing her nudity. You know, she's showing her femininity. They ran past the palisade clearing where Freitas and Gudrid waited with the cattle. Where are you going, you cowards? shouted Freitas. No one paid any attention to her, Thorvard least of all. As for the Skrylings, they laughed a brazen yelping laugh when they saw her, and called her Kestiuiscu. Oh, you'd like me to take my shirt off, would you? shrieked Freitas. I'll show you, you savage thralls, you hell-meat. She began to clamor over the walls of the palisade. Gudrid, being Christian, sought to restrain Freitas from this, for she was pregnant and weaponless. But Freitas grinned down at her with a hell grin, and Gudrid looked at her black hands, and her own hands fell limply to her sides. For all the girth of her belly, Freitas was very fit and strong. She ran to where Thorbrand Snorrison lay dead and snatched up his sword. As the Skrylings ran towards her, she tore a great rip in her shirt with her hand and pulled one of her breasts out and began whacking it with the sword, yelling, Is that what you want to see, thralls? Ha ha! Have none of you dogs seen a bitch? Look how I gash myself now with this sword. See the blood, you thralls? See my black hands? See me touching myself with them? You'd better start running, thralls, or I'm going to touch you with them too, and you'll all drop dead. Here I come. Musku Namusuti! 
Yeah. And I think that's integral. This idea of gender roles and breaking away from those sort of expectations. I mean, that's sort of at the core of the conflict between Gudrid and Freitas mm -hmm. is that Freitas adopts very traditionally or reductively masculine gender roles, um, not only in terms of those incidences of actual combat, but just in her behavior, right, in her attitudes. And Gudrid is painted as this figure of good, right? We have these juxtaposing sort of Christian and pagan representatives or avatars. But an interesting element is this, what we could call sort of internalized misogyny, which is on both ends where Gudrid is resentful of Freitas because she kind of takes on these stronger roles, whereas Gudrid is is sort of more, I don't want to say Machiavellian, but she she is duplicitous in, in you know, whether it's that sort of whispering in the ear is just one example, perhaps a benign example of it. But he says of Gudrid, Gudrid, who had always been able to rule, so she fancied through a beautifully calculated sweetness, intensely disliked Freitas's way of managing her affairs, for she had no understanding of the difficulties that Freitas suffered under. The judgment of other women when women subvert a particular role or find success, because Freitas does find material success, her and her husband are very rich through trade, right? When they break out of these very, what we might say is very confining gender roles. And I think Freitas too, you see that other end of the spectrum where there's a reciprocity in that resentment because she is angry or resents Gudrid because of the beauty that she has and the fact that she finds love. Ullman makes mention that Gudrid found part of that unblinding and, and that ability to love and find Idrisil is the fact that she really does love Carl Sefni. He makes mention of that. Whereas she, um, I'm forgetting Freitas's husband, Thorvard, there's nothing there. She resents him and whether it's masturbation or whether it's sort of emotionless, just sex with the warriors in her employ, there's nothing there. There's no amorousness. There's nothing going on there. It's just biological or physical process for her. I've marked some of that in my read because I was also kind of noticing that kind of intentional dichotomy he's setting up. There's this one wonderful part in wearing the ice shirt. Gudrun was very weary of Phaedrus and was impossible to avoid witnessing her ordering her men about with shouts and blows. She seemed so unrestrained in Wineland now that people wondered at it. She doesn't seem almost wild, you know, that she's the one who's been changing through these environments. This trauma that she's experienced, right? But she could never understand that. And so that's why they came up these worlds from very different approaches that that you've so wonderfully explained. I mean, like the way you've run down those two characters. And again, that's sort of central to the what is the abiding takeaway or conclusion from that everyone recognizes the, the landscapes around us are but a shadow of the landscapes inside us. Because that very quote comes from their efforts to find Idrisil. And Freitas is sort of wandering this gothic barren landscape of dead trees. Mm. And meanwhile, Gudrid is this sort of beautiful, fantastical golden forest where she does find Idrisil. And this is all going back to how brilliantly Bill can characterize this relationship and this dynamic within the themes and the subtext and what he's trying to get at. Although Vinland seemed but a promontory to the Greenlanders, the truth was that it went south and south and south, widening as it traveled into the places of hot and steamy darkness, 
Gudrid's country was by no means at the end of it. It seemed not impossible that Vinland might stretch all the way to the Mare Oceanum, that was so black and cold and misty, where the Midgard serpent waited with its tail in its mouth. I am maddened by the impossibility of describing Vinland, how it was in the sun's light with golden trees rising higher and higher the farther Gudrid went into the forest. Golden trees that Freydis could never have found, for the landscape around us is but a shadow of the landscape within us. So that Freydis found mainly crooked black trees, or when she walked into the golden light, she was tormented by it, as I have described. And from leagues away, sardonic Kluskop could see her pale head swimming, disembodied in its own inky darkness, bereft at last even of its desperation and despair, so that she strode calmly. But for Gudrid the trees rose harmonious and golden, their leaves more velvety than Pell, which was why the Skraelings sometimes clothed themselves in those green skins. As she went on her way, with her baby on her back, Gudrid hummed a tune to make him sleep, and she never thought what the tune was, but it was one of the songs that her dead foster mother Haldis had taught her, and the words were, An ash I know called Idrasil, the mighty tree, moist with white dews. Thence come the floods, that fall adown, ever green overtops, fates well this tree. And Freydis knew the same song, but she sang it thus. I know an ash called Terror's Horse, the sky-cliff tree slimed with snow-dews. Thence roar the floods, that death-foam down, ever green this tree, over well of weird. For there are two kinds of everything, and Freydis's forest dreams were haunted always by Idrisil's clammy green shadow rippling on that well of weird, at the bottom of which lay Odin's eye, ripped from his head as payment for one drink of that water. But Gudrid's song was happy, the happier still for her because she did not remember what it was, and she came almost at once to a tree that was gold and green in the sun, although much of it was dead. And birds of many colors nested in the crooks of its branch arms, and they sang for her, and a spring bubbled out of the moss between two roots, and the tree's leaves made music in the sun for her, and all its dead leaves were real gold. Gudrid laughed and clapped her hands. It is beautiful, by Christ, she said. But at that name, of course, there came a terrible screeching noise from inside the tree, and the birds flew away, and the leaves withered, and the tree became black and dead. We touched upon this earlier, Jordan, which is the, you know, in many reviews, there's this sort of haphazard mention of the quote unquote transvestites in San Francisco, 1987. And it's thrown out as sort of this dissonant note or weird sort of digression that's extraneous to the themes in the text, at least in the reviews I've read. They don't seem to conceive it. And by they, I mean, readers or, or commentators don't really seem to perceive it as something integral to the text itself and the, the thematics. And I, I couldn't disagree more. And I wanted to talk about the discussions of gender and gender performance and fluidity in the work, because I think these are just really monumental themes and, and aspects within the novel. And maybe to start us off, 
this really is centered around the cosmological aspects. You know, Jordan, you read that quote from Bill earlier about creation and transformation, and and these are key. And you know, we we see this in in the Inuit creation myths, and we can dive into it. But maybe to just kind of pull it all together and start us off. Who is at the center of this book? Who's on the first the first sentence, if I recall correctly? It's Amor Tortak. Yeah. who we then find is sort of this ubiquitous, multifaceted, cross-cultural, transgender manifestation mm-hmm. that, you know, at, at my count was some nine deities, Amor Tortak, Blue Shirt, Blauserk, Black Hands, Younger Brother, Third Brother, Son, mm-hmm. Grandfather, Muskunamut Sute, and Hell herself. Well, I mean, we would have to start with than the elder brother, younger brother story, and that you have this Inuit creation story that the first two humans are both male, right? And then one of them, because of the, I forget her name, the the, spirit woman, spirit woman, yes. So spirit woman comes through and changes, you know, in a way of kind of saving them and then humanity, um, younger brother into a woman. The chapter, you know, that that's happening is called the hermaphrodite. And so we have younger brother, you know, has this full transformation and then becomes the, in a way, woman of the two. And then what goes with that elder brother trying to guide younger brother through this, he knows more because he's elder, but he doesn't really understand what younger brother is going through. But there does seem to be some knowledge of him about what a woman is. And so it's a a strange myth because there's something about that myth, too, that's like, kind of like what we're talking about with the sagas and that these sagas don't give a lot of psychological motivation and, and often ancient myths don't at all. And so there is like the weirdness of taking a a myth that was probably very two dimensional and then injecting it with this kind of modern contemporary psychological humanity to them that makes it weirder for us to kind of to, to sit with, but, you know, just from the beginning of that sets us up and, and it's, it's, you know, page 96, but it's still pretty early in the book that we've got, of course, a whole whole section about changing and, you know, these Icelandic people and, and the Norse people. And then we have this section of Inuit myth. And then finally, they come together with the fourth section, but largest section that's titled Freitas. But we have the hermaphrodite shirt, you know, so it's one of the shirts that a person can wear. And it's a very small little paragraph that's just asking these questions. Was a woman something she was supposed to be? But had she not started out being one, and she did not want to be one, and of course, as referring to younger brother as this woman, she did not necessarily want not to be one, but she wanted to be several things. A woman was not all she was. And then a little after that, you know, this kind of resentment of, of younger brother, that he's the one who's lost his penis, that he's the one who's, who's been changed. And this kind of the role that elder brother puts him in as as woman, even though he's kind of joking, and even though, but there's a, initially becomes a lack of understanding between the two of them, and I guess there kind of never really was too much understanding because the age difference between the two and the weirdness of experience that the older brother has, but younger brother now being relegated to being the woman and relegated really is the way it's presented sets him up for the kind of maybe possession we could call it by Amor Tortac. Yeah, uh, there's a, there's a you're, you're exactly because the one quote that stood out to me that I think ties into the characterization particularly of Freitas and agency is younger brother says to herself mm-hmm. she ought to have a new name having become different she had lost mm-hmm. her name now she was only a wife. Yes. Yeah. And so 
she was identified still in relation. They're only identified in relation to each other. But now it's a, a sub-relation wife. Amor Tortak is, is kind of a, as you pointed out very well, like the revenge of the unloved. This comes up also in, when you hear, when you read about Bill talking about Europe Central, he gets into the Freudian Jungian and the return of the repressed. And that's a whole lot in, in Rising Up, Rising Down also. And then you can look back on these works, but when he's not explicitly using that terminology, but it's also, again, the kind of return of the repressed, the revenge of the repressed. And if it's the feminine that is being repressed here, and that it becomes amortortak or just this spirit of evil, mischief, revenge, whatever it is, that preys upon these different repressed or under-acknowledged aspects of humans and humanity that's able to kind of be easily possessed by them, by Amor Tortek. Though I think I might have just gotten lost my own multiple metaphors. No, no, it, it's complex, but it, it's just interesting that it cuts across everything because maybe this is something you can speak to a bit, Sean, but when we find out that Amor Tortak is also Hell, Loki's daughter, she makes reference that when she became him, for she could pull her woman's shirt on and off like her father. So there seems to also be this sort of fluidity within the Viking imaginary, right? The Norse imaginary, we might call it. Yeah, Loki is in multiple times and multiple myths portrayed as gender fluid. And not just gender fluid, but like species fluid as well. At one point, he takes the form of a mare uh, and gets in, and gets impregnated by a stallion. Um, and then he gives birth to a, a horse that has eight legs named Sleipnir, and that becomes Odin's horse. There's a great, uh, there's a great poem, a great myth called Thrinskvita, where Thor loses his hammer. And speaking of Freud uh, and, and Jung and stuff, <laughs> Freud loses his hammer and needs to go retrieve it. And so Loki comes up with this plan to dress Thor up in a wedding dress and marry him off to this giant. Um, so Thor cross-dresses, dresses as a woman, and Loki, to accompany Thor, literally transforms into a woman and transforms into a maid. And the poem addresses them in, in, in gender-neutral pronouns from then on out as he's in woman form. And so I, I think this is getting back to what Jordan was talking about earlier with these ideas of metamorphosis and these ideas of, of transformation. Again, we talk about at the beginning of this book, all of these berserkir who are able to kind of become literally bears in some ways or literally wolves in some cases. And this fluid movement between, I mean, the characters kind of lose that ability to become bears and wolves as we talked about earlier. But this idea of of being able to move between different gender performances, I think, as Ryan talked about earlier, has everything to do with this shirt motif that we keep getting again and again and again. To kind of bring this back to the starting point, that kind of recontextualizes the appearance, however brief, of Jerome and Miss Giddings, whether they're trans women or gender nonconforming. There's so much in there that that is a sort of a manifestation or a reflection or a demonstration of this fluidity that that goes back to our earliest myths and histories and stories. He says that, I believe in, in response to Jerome, Volman says, as if he were wading cautiously into female water. This woman suddenly yawned and her face fragmented to a thousand lumps for a moment, becoming a man's face. And then she licked her lips and smiled and became a woman again. So it was just really a brilliant 
connection that he made, two synapses firing, or that that moment of connection between seeing this thread in the mythology and saying, well, this is an interest of his we've seen in the other books, the topic of gender and gender nonconformity and gender fluidity, and to to bring them together in such a uh, I think a thoughtful way was just really, it was evocative and it was sort of a lightning bolt as I read and and sort of a conclusion, not a conclusion I came to, but definitely something, uh, an observation that I made note of. And I think when I first read this like 20 years ago, that moment was, and the way I kind of still see it now, why it's placed there is it's something that humans have always done and we still do. (laughs) I'm not a universalist, but it's something that we see in most cultures and most time periods that this is something that people have always played with and that if gender is performed, we've always performed it in these different ways. And it ties back in with Phaedrus in a way is that one of her powers is she can be a man or act masculine or act the way men do. None of the men do that. As you were pointing out earlier, Sean, like the men used to, you know, switch to bears and we think that's awesome and they're warriors. Women do anything that's masculine and they're monstrous. She's showing that she still has this power that she can put on the masculine shirt, put on the man shirt where she could pick up a sword, she could do all these different things, she can murder people. And Gudrid, I mean, is maybe they're in a neat place because one should be envious of Gudrid's beauty. But in a way, Gudrid is frightened, but maybe envious of like the flexibility of Phaedrus. Mm-hmm. The power of Phaedrus is that she can be beyond herself slash beyond her gender. And Gudrid might just be a wife. In a way, it's it's like younger brother. The issues that younger brother's experiencing is kind of being split between those two women. I can't help but always think about when you brought up Loki, like Tiresias, you know, in, in the Sophocles Oedipus myth, and that Tiresias spent seven years as a woman, right? And so he's blind also to get wisdom, kind of like Odin losing one eye for wisdom. Like Loki, he's, he's shapeshifts and Tiresias spends seven years as a woman, and that gives him the insight to be a great seer after that because he's seen both sides if you want to have a binary gender dichotomy. So he, he's seen both sides, so he knows more than anybody else and is able to kind of see deeply because everyone else lacks that other component that Tiresias has. And that's what's so amazing about the at least the Norse setup is that ability to transform. The other topic I wanted to discuss was, again, talking about Bill's prescience or having his finger on the pulse to a certain extent we may say that popular conversation and discourse is downstream of academic discourse, is the topic of race and class, which I think are very integral to to the ice shirt. And I think historical racialization of the Inuit is scralings or trolls and incipient conceptions of whiteness. And I thought, particularly when this became apparent to me, was the parable with Bjorn the Crusader and Solvig and the indigenous children. So they They come to Greenland, I believe, and they run across these two children who they sort of adopt in this sort of nuclear family-esque fashion, but that just becomes this incidence of, or or this, again, parable for racial imagination, racial imaginings, and really sort of that those heinous outgrowths of forced reculturalization and assimilation. And so, again, socially constructed racial superiority, whiteness relative to redness, again, using these in scare quotes. We saw it a little bit earlier. The earliest incident was probably Iceland's cavemen, who may be either Irishmen or Skralings, according to William the Blind, the sort of first encounters with an indigenous population. But getting back to Bjorn and Solvig and the troll children, again, this is the first cross-cultural encounter 
explored in any detail within the text. And while there's moments of humor, sort of that weird, awkward fumblings between these characters, there are sinister implications. And I think most saliently, the sort of otherization of the children along physical and racial lines, round faces, black hair and eyes, brown skin. And coming from my background in studying topics like Nazi racial hygiene, the eugenics movement, you see these conceptions, you know, getting back to, as you said, Sean, the weird stuff of Viking history, <laughs> quote unquote, you know, that those ideas of we see the development of racial categorization, Asiatic relative to Nordic in the 20th century, and the social construction of race and as a sort of a hierarchical structure. Bill, I think, rightly sees the villainous or the the really terrible outgrowths and and byproducts of this, you know, again, it is always easier when dehumanizing our enemies to convince ourselves that they are odd in shape or size. Yeah. And I mean, again, talking about like the weird stuff of being into Viking studies, the cry, hail Vinland, hail victory has been used by many white supremacists in the United States. And this kind of goes back to this idea of trying to find Vinland, this this dream of this settlement. There's a reason why we keep finding all of these fake runestones all across the Northeast of the United States is because people want to believe in this kind of white colonial state in a lot of ways. And so that word, by the way, Skryling, a Skrylinger, is kind of one of the most written about words from these sagas, um, because we're really not sure what that means. It seems to be just kind of like a type of slur in a way. It, it might relate to the Old Norse uh, Skryta, which means like to yell or to shriek, but we really don't know. It could also mean to like to wither or to parch, and perhaps in reference to skin. But I think what's important is that a lot of times when we're talk when we talk about pre-early modern race, we often get critiqued of talking about how like race is a pre-modern thing that then kind of becomes really important in the modern world. But race was important in the Middle Ages as well. I mean, the, the descriptions that we have of these Skrylings from these sagas talk about their skin color, which is obviously clearly off in reference to the Nordic people's skin color. So the relationship between these two groups is very fraught because we don't know if we're dealing with history or if we're dealing with mythology, as just like Volman does, uh, the sagas, as, as I'm sure you both know, kind of move back and forth between like folklore, mythology, and real history. So yeah, the Skrylings are fascinating. In their kind of monstrosity, in some ways, um, you know, they have these kind of like magical catapults and um, they have a magic bowl that they use at one point. But of course, Volman is very clear to situate this whole kind of story as a an attempt at colonialism. That's what the Vinland dream is all about, is colonialism. There's these points of connection and he's building this argument because there is the dehumanization. There is the proposition of... Vinland is a promised land, right? A paradise to be discovered. And that ties back into the Christian intentions behind the idea of patronage and Gudrid. The Vinland sagas were likely written as an homage, as an act of patronage to the, the bishops, you mm -hmm. know, to celebrate the bishops who descended from her, right? So we see the positioning of this promised land and that has to be defended. We have to then position our enemies as demonic, right? Or un a preterite, unbelievers, you know, that then you start seeing references afterwards. I mean, he says this explicitly several times in all capital letters, white Christ, 
We see concepts of benevolent paternalism, which is a dynamic within sort of the colonial project. If you want to look at the British Raj, or if you want to look at Southern antebellum patriarchal slavery, you know, this idea that they they can't take care of themselves, so we have to step in and do it. And that creates a sense of entitlement by the conquering people, um, a responsibility. Or he just Quote literally unquote. gives them buckets of their milk to drink. <laughs> yeah. That right. they then want to rub. And then that's an interesting thing of the idea of reculturation or assimilation or cult, because then there's the white wishers, right? There are indigenous people who want to become white because they believe it brings with certain powers or at least access to weaponry. Yeah. Uh, and then that also feeds into, again, Bill has said no one set of people are better than any other set of people. And there's a direct quote from Fathers and Crows where he he calls out noble, savage romanciers as he, he refers to them. Mm-hmm. So you then get a sort of reciprocal prejudice or antagonism from the indigenous towards the Vikings. They refer to them as demons or genuac. Or later in, in Greenland in 1987, the Tunersu. There's sort of these reciprocal antipathies that we start to see develop uh, within these communities. And that's one of the reasons why I rewatched that movie Pathfinder. Do you know the film, Sean? It was from 2007 with Carl Urban. It's the myth of like the, the white guy going indigenous. He's, he's a, a Viking child left with Vinlanders. And then the Vikings come back and he's the only one who could fight them because he understands their weapons. I mean, there's some beautiful filming in it. There's some wonderful fight scenes. But it was something that got, you know, slammed for being, you know, inauthentic because the green the, the Vikings just look awful. They look like demons and they're acting awful and just wiping these people out. And we've seen so much of Native Americans looking awful in media that, like, why not have the opposite also? But, like, watching that along with reading this, it's also, it's nice, too, because, like, how else would some of these people look to the Inuit there, Micmac and, you know, Algonquin? I mean, how else would they look with horned helmets if they have that? Or just what they're wearing as armor and what their weapons are like and someone as bloodthirsty as Phaedrus and some of these other, like, they would seem monstrous, you know? And they're, and they're using this term, Jenuk, Jenuk, J-E-N-U-A-Q. And so, you know, they're, they're thinking of them as demons. And, and that film really kind of pulls that off. And there's also nothing wrong with giving that take to this. But like the part that I was actually zooming in uh, that I was going to bring up, Ryan, that you that you also got to is the how the Skraelings whiten themselves. And it's a very Volman thing to consider, kind of like, you know, the the the, the traitors, you know, happening throughout You Bright and Risen Angel. The, this idea of switching sides and the way he points out in that section here is that it's they're excited about it, enticed about it is the weapons, you know, and that's, yeah. that's the thing that... And that he clearly picks up back again with the rifles. I mean, that's what that whole that whole dream is about. The introduction of the repeating rifle into the Arctic causes all of that change in that book. And so this one, it's the symbolism of bringing ice, the icy heart. And yes, the indigenous could be just as brutal to each other. And we mostly see that in Fathers and Crows. But this kind of bringing of colonialism is bringing of the ice heart in this volume. And it does yeah. kind of put him saying, of course, that that no one culture is better than the other. This one it looks a little more clean cut of like the maybe the victimhood to some degree in the colonial experience happening here. 
Yeah, I, I think to your point, this is where we see the development and the evolution. I think the dichotomy between whiteness and indigeneity, if we want to call it that, that we then see demonstrated in the later books, I think explicitly in the rifles. And then the other one I would point out is the dying grass. And one thing I underlined in my notes, because it just it hit me like a ton of bricks was, so we have Amor Tortak referred to as blue shirt or blouserk. And then what do we have? The U.S. Army soldiers hunting down the Nez Perce. What are they referred to as in the dying grass? Blue coats. Mm -hmm. So I think that was a definite moment where he connected those two works in a really exciting for me way as a reader when I when I noticed that sort of cognitive tether. But then we get into, you know, again, blue shirt called white shirt by now. And and then, you know, there's a parenthetical all land is white. Mm -hmm. um, so I think he he is building towards a subjugation along, along racial lines that is one of the more salient and insidious elements of the American story. Queen Hell, Loki's daughter. Sometimes when she chose to, Queen Hell took off her flesh and went naked, her toothy jaws grinning then no matter how sad she was. And she shook her skull slowly from side to side and made her unwilling lovers play tunes on her ribs. Her breath was worse than the milky stench of the serpents. Oh, darling, she said, sit beside me and kiss me. You can take your shirt off now. The snakes lifted their heads whenever she spoke and their round eyes glittered like the scales of fish, and their mouths were very black inside. At other times, she had the head of a rotting horse. Her broad teeth went on and on like a horse's. They were yellow and black. She welcomed dead warriors to her stinking arms. Phaedrus, too, she would kiss, for she was so far dead. She had always been so, as to care nothing for distinctions of sex. Come now, she said, beckoning Phaedrus to her and Phaedrus stepped up to her high seat while the trolls laughed, and she knelt before her and could not but smell her horrible smell, and the queen hell bade her rise and stretch out her black hands to embrace her, and her eyes shone cruelly. Slowly, slowly, Phaedrus wrapped her arms around her. She even smiled slightly, such as her resolution, as queen hell kissed her full in the mouth. Come sit beside me on the high seat, and I will play with you, laughed Hell as she fondled Phaedrus, and Phaedrus suffered her to pull her down beside her and nuzzle her with her great black head whose eyes were like great green torch fires. And Hell threw a leg over Phaedrus's leg and whinnied and nuzzled Phaedrus's breast through her shirt with her terrible mouth and sucked her nipples until they bled. And so Phaedrus sit it seemed, until a new dead soul came to Corpse Strand. Yes, thought Phaedrus to herself, I really must become a Christian so that I do not have to suffer her again when I am dead. It was only then that she saw that white Baldur sat meekly beside her, bleeding and bleeding from his mistletoe wound and smiling sadly at her. At once Phaedrus became jealous she could imagine Queen Hell drawing her bedclothes around him and giving him privileges. She could envision the same with Blue Shirt, but then she remembered that Hell was Blue Shirt.
before we move on into some closing elements for the show, I wanted to ask you just briefly, I'd, be, I'd love to hear what each of you have to say because I definitely have thoughts about it. What do ice, frost, or blue represent to you? We jump in first because it's been totally by this messed with because and then Sean, you know, would would know this first is that the for the the Norse, the word blue incorporated black. That the people of Africa referred to were referred to as blue by them. And that blue contained the black hands that's that's used throughout here. I've got a particular shade of blue that I love that I call like Napoleon blue. If it's that royal blue that's like navy, that's like almost black, like Batman's original mm. cave. And I, I mean, to me, it's, you know, it fits that kind of idea of like royalty and majesty. But then expanding it now with this and that blue can include black in it kind of gives it a, a whole other form to me that I think that blue, now that I think of it, blue contains its own shadow. And I think that's that's why I've always loved it and i didn't realize that until this very moment and saying it like that and that really works then with the metaphor that he uses throughout all of these volman books so yeah there's the name in old norse for men from africa are blaumathor blue men or black men and again there's even a bit where volman mentions this this is a very fraught scholarly debate of what does blau mean does it mean blue or black people have all sorts of crazy uh, opinions on it there are some interesting like mythological echoes as as well that are like worth noting that Odin is often described as wearing a blue coat, blue oh. coat. And it's also this weird thing where when men go to kill people, they're often described in the sagas as they put on a blue coat and brought their axe or oh, something wow. like that. So they often wear it before they go out to, to do what they're going to do. That's noted in more than a few sagas. But that fits with us was like black, right? I mean, like the man in black, Grim Reaper, black, a black shroud, something like that. Probably, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, because there is another word in, in Old Norse for black, and it's svartir, uh, which is where we get words like swarthy, which is the word that's used to describe the Skrylings in the Vinland sagas, which is interesting. This is just a really quick note, and then I'll talk more about blue and ice, I promise. But in the translation that I'm sure you both read of the Vinland sagas of Eric Sagaroida, He's quoting from Skalot's book, uh, one of the manuscripts, and not from Hoik's book. Hoik's book describes the Dreilings as svartir, as black, but also malignant looking. And so there is this racial dichotomy right from the start. It's interesting that uh, the translator in this edition doesn't footnote that and, and note that. I, I don't think he does that, um, which is quite interesting. But go, going back to blue and ice and, and frost, I think these ideas, they, they often link to kind of supernatural aspects in some ways. I'm thinking of Blausöker, of that, that glacier um, that is described. And an interesting thing about that glacier is that in one manuscript, it's called Blausöker, and in the other manuscript, it's called Kvitsöker, white shirt, which is quite interesting. Um, but these glaciers are often these these like places of supernatural encounters. Snaifusjökull is described in, in both the Ice Shirt and the Vinland Sagas. And that is the starting point for Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth. Right? Yeah. They go Halder Laxness has a whole book about it. Under and, the volcano, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Halder Laxness is under the glacier. So yeah, there, there's often this supernatural element to the way snow and ice covers things. And I think this links directly, of course, to the idea of a shirt and that it, it kind of conceals and hides. Um, and so there's always this kind of, there could be this deception or this, at the very least, this illusion kind of at the heart of ice and snow and this blueness 
think uh, we're all thinking along the same lines. It was a oft recurring image interconnected with, again, blue, black, white, one black dream. For me, it was a dramatic representation or device for what this story is about, which is the destruction of indigenous peoples on the continent as a part of various colonial projects from 1000 to 2000, the thousand year, the millennium. Freitas has a, a separate from her seven dreams, but there's an, at one point, then in her mind, she saw hundreds of scrailing corpses floating in the warm, bloody water. Their eyes were open and their chests were pierced by spears of ice. You know, she's seeing a dream of the future, of America's future. While it's not exclusive to any one society or culture, violence is a natural, indistinguishable phenomenon, is, is sort of the argument that Bill, I think, is making through these books. Apropos of my last comment there, there's a point during, the, and we didn't talk much about it, but there's that amazing sequence where, uh, where Freitas travels to hell, really one of the most horrifying and evocative depictions of the inferno that I've read in fiction. And William the Blind makes a point saying the Norse gods named Blue Shirt Future. And I think that's what he's getting at. A history of regrettable actions, the material residue of which is blood. It's a linguistic device to capture and evoke the iniquities and the crimes of America if we want to be reductive of our history. I think he's, he's being very clear with that. One thing that's funny is um, I just remembered another blue that's in here and, and that was a really nice ending. So maybe, maybe you know, we'll, we'll end with that. But like Volman in other things he's written about, there's a terrifying blueness to him and it is the blue glow of the television. And that has actually shown up. I mean, he talks about kind of the blue glow of the, of the computer screen in You Write and Risen Angels. But I mean, there's, there's essays or reportage where he talks about that blue glow. He finds it more even in the Arctic now than he used to. And, and he thinks of that as just kind of death, that like people aren't going outside. You're staying in, you're just staring at the thing. No respect for time is one of the reasons why he hates you know, the television. For him, there's a particular blue glow that is also a bad thing, and that is the television. And I just kind of remember that association because he mentions it's Slabland. There's that one point here where he says, there was the blue light all night and the birds sang. That blue light of modern technology. And it does kind of have that feeling, particularly from that thing I read earlier, that if he's following, you know, Ovid's metamorphosis and and each age is getting a little worse than the one before, then what you just said about this kind of thousand uh, year thousand to year two thousand, that's the trajectory here. And that and if that the blue shirt represents the future, it's the future of the men in the blue shirts, you know, rounding up the Nez Perce. It's the future of the blue globe of television, but it's the future of us now more detached from nature and landscape and maybe less good than they were before. The Palace of Amar Tortak. Atop this mountain was a castle made of ice, like a skull on the mountain's blue shoulders. The walls were fortified with blue stones and beams of ice seven ells thick. Upon the battlements walked demons, and little misshapen scrylings, armed with horn bows. A ramp ascended to the main gate. Down its middle was a set of rails, at the top of which a wagon loaded with hailstones and boulders. Demons stood on either side of this cart, holding fast to the ropes made of walrus hide. In the event of any attack, 
the wagon could be let down upon its rails so that it would rush towards the besiegers faster and faster, until finally the demons pulled upon the ropes to check it suddenly, and the missiles came flying out upon the men below to crush them. Forty ells below the parapets of Blue Shirt's castle, guards strutted upon wooden bratises, walking round and round the walls like flies, so that they could see movement from any direction. Atop the ramparts were cauldrons of ice stone so cold as to burn, feeding upon their own chill. This molten frost could be poured down upon anyone who approached the castle walls, so that he would freeze and fall down tinkling into a thousand shattered pieces. Demons leaned upon great poles of seahorn shod with points of ironhide ice. These would be cast like spears. In addition, the ice all about the base of the wall was mined and covered with snow carefully raked, so that no one unfamiliar to Blue Shirt would know where they could safely step, if he were to go off the main path. These mines were deep and narrow pits filled with silently burning flames of cold fire. Above the castle roof was constructed a second roof of ice and snow, set upon thick ice posts, so that an armed host hurling stones over the battlement could do no harm. Boldly, Freitas approached. So much of the success of the show and fun with the show has been predicated on the relationships that we've been able to build with our audience, with our listeners, with you, the fellow readers of Bill's work. To that end, we thought it'd be fun to start incorporating your feedback and your presence in the show because you all are such an integral part of what we do here. I put out a call on Instagram and Twitter in mid-January to just gauge folks' responses, your reactions, your reviews, your experiences reading the ice shirt. And for those of you who responded, wanted to say thank you, and we wanted to read your comments on the show. So this is going to be part of a new segment that we're launching, beginning with the ice shirt and continuing into our future episodes, where we'll have an opportunity, we'll put out a call on social media for listeners to contribute their comments on each episode's book. And we want to do that through Instagram, through Twitter, but also stealing a page from Beyond the Zero and our friends Ben and Seth over there, opening our email, volmania at gmail.com, to recorded listener responses. Quick voicemails of maybe one to two minutes, similarly detailing your experience with each book, which we can then edit into each episode, so that all of you, even though you're already part of Volmania, can be even a bigger part of Volmania. We can give a platform to your thoughts and opinions, which are equally as important as ours. And with that being said, let's start off by sharing listener comments on the ice shirt. Christopher on Twitter writes, The best way to experience the ice shirt is to read it while driving up the west coast of Newfoundland, visiting the reconstructed Viking settlements at Lansall Meadows. What I find interesting about the ice shirt is the narrative distance we have from the Viking settlers. All the other Seven Dreams books clearly have an identification with the colonizer, which is deepest in the rifles when WTV actually becomes John Franklin. But the Vikings seem equally as distant to the reader of the ice shirt as the locals. It's a way of seeing settler colonialism from the outside. Also, I think Freitas is metal. Nick Domish on Twitter says, The ice shirt was my introduction to the seven dreams. Fathers and crows had been sitting on my shelf staring me down and I needed a less intimidating book to begin the journey. It was well worth it. Will Johnson, also on Twitter, writes in, for my comp lit undergrad dissertation, I almost did a study on Seven Dreams based on B. Westfall's geocriticism. The landscapes around us are but a shadow of the landscapes within us, etc. It's a cool comparative angle with you Brighton Risen Angels' forests of premoral mushrooms 
and the North Pole setting. Freeway Gods from Twitter says, The Ice Shirt was the first work of Volman's that I read where his style clicked for me. Having read You Bright and Risen Angels and The Rainbow Stories first, the Ice Shirt's epic nature and grand scope felt like it was particularly suited to WTV's almost sui generis style. It definitely got me feeling the Volmania. From Instagram, listener Jay Murkoff writes, Begins and ends with shirts. From bear sark to bear shirt, the wolf of the evening in a death cap mushroom rage when he puts on his shirt, to the act of putting on new shirts, or trading it, transformation. A time when some people wear bear shirts and some gold shirts, and some dream of blue shirts and blue mountains, and even back when Elder Brother went back to the ice and it linked us to those 10,000-year-old stories of the ice wall, and how much easier it is to walk on snow than dirt, and how the varying colors of ice that used to represent places where it was safe to walk now represent whatever we make them to be. These dreams are all that was left when all that was left to change was the land. Ethan Von Sampt on Instagram says, Back in undergrad, I took a class about medievalism and contemporary literature with a friend. Our professor had us read the ice shirt along with the Vinland sagas. Needless to say, the ice shirt blew us away with its mix of meta-reportage and its visceral retelling of myth and history. A lifelong WTV interest for both of us began in that class. Happily, I managed to get my paperback copy of the ice shirt signed by the man himself when he did a reading of The Dying Grass, also fantastic, a few years back. The ice shirt is probably the perfect entry point for someone looking to get a digestible sense of what Volman is all about, or as my friend calls it, his style and proclivities. It was the first of many Volman books where, after I finished reading it, I felt like I was viewing the world in a newer, more complex, and rewarding way. Max McGee on Instagram writes, Shortly after I read it, I watched a Jeopardy episode in which Matt Amadeo correctly responded, What's Idrisil? I was pretty impressed, lol. And our friend Kevin, or Hudson Valley book nerd on Instagram, responded, Remember. Aiden Baker Music on Instagram writes, This was the first Volman I read, and it remains my favorite of everything I've read of his since. It had a wonderful seriality mixed with a gritty realism that I found very appealing and fascinating. I made a song with the book in mind. And to close, Ellipsis Nick on Instagram wrote, I love the ice shirt. So what would you say is your overall verdict, uh, Jordan and Sean? Was the ice shirt successful? Other than some maybe sentences I found a little uneven, but that's really nitpicking. I think it's an extremely successful book. And I think we've been going in chronological order. Um, Afghanistan picture a little out of order. And we've talked about kind of the failings of that in a, li- in a little bit. But like, I think it's his first most successful book. I think it's, you know, Volman at, at the beginning of close to perfection. And especially, I mean, maybe people might even like the fact that it's not that long. I think it's one of his close to perfect and a real sign of this guy is going to just continue to blow minds in all these different ways as a book. I was pleasantly surprised as well. Again, like I said at the very beginning, I, I wasn't, I, I usually try to stay away from modern adaptations of, of medieval story worlds because I, I often find that they just don't capture it in the right way. But I think that I thought this was bold. I like the direction he took it in, the changes that he makes from the original source material and the kind of things that he brings in from the modern world are really fascinating. And I'm, I'd be interested to to see how these dreams continue to play out as one thing that I think is important to, to reiterate here is that if this was a colonialist endeavor, which in some ways they were certainly trying to stay in, in Vinland for as long as possible, it was a failure. Whereas mm-hmm. every other colonialist endeavor that Volman is going to look at is 
in a way, I mean, success is probably the wrong word here, but they are successful at being colonists. So I, I think it'll be very interesting for me personally to go now and, and and read what happens in 600 years time when this project is tried again by Europeans. Same thing. I, I think I'm just echoing what Sean said. Pleasant surprise. I think I, again, really misjudged this book. And in fact, this is probably of all the, the books we've read for this show, Jordan, this is my favorite so far. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really great forum for all of Bill's strengths as a writer, growing strengths and sipient strengths. And I think it's just a fascinating, you know, it's a page turner, it, it, getting back to those early discussions about the mythology the Norse world being a sort of a, a wellspring for high fantasy. It, it, you see that in there. It's, it's, it's it, there's adventure, you know, it's dark adventure, but there is an adventure element to it. An absolute pleasure to read. And I just found myself wanting to come back to it all the time. And in terms of who I would recommend it to, I think just about anyone, there's a little bit of a learning curve, particularly around as, as we joked around the names and that sort of meme I posted with all the Spider-Man <laughs> pointing at each other. They're all Thor's. Thor's. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> We didn't talk much about apparatus today, but I think that Bill has said the appendices are there for when and if you need them. Mm-hmm. He includes them. He he is grateful or happy when people find it useful. And I think in this instance, I found it useful. I was flipping back and forth to the, the glossary of personal names pretty frequently, and I found it helpful. So if you are willing to meet him on that point, I would really recommend this book to anyone. And yeah, like I said, there's a bit of a learning curve, particularly as you're learning about the, the Norse kings and, and and things of that nature. But overall, an, an excellent work and one of the best I've read from him. So before we go, Sean, thank you so much for joining us. We wanted to, to let our listeners know where they can find you online. Yeah, uh, thanks so much for having me. Again, I, I love the podcast. So I'm really honored to have been able to be a part of it for an episode. I have a YouTube channel called Travel Through Stories. Twitter, I think it's Travel Stories YT and Instagram. I think just Travel Through Stories. I'm sure you could find it from the YouTube channel. Thank you both very, very much. Yeah, Thank you, Sean. It, it's really great having a scholar help us with this. <laughs> stuff. Yeah, definitely. And I can't thank you enough for joining us. I thought the conversation was amazing. Great start to the seven dreams. And we'll talk again soon. And I'm sure our listeners will hear us again soon. We're not quite at the second dream yet. We still got a couple of points before then, but uh, soon enough, we'll be uh, traveling back to Quebec, one of the potential locations of Vinland. You've been listening to Volmania, a show about the books of William Tanner Volman. We'll be back soon with our episode on his next collection, 13 Stories and 13 Epitaphs. As always, you can find us online at volmania.buzzsprout.com, as well as all major podcasting platforms. If you'd be so kind as to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, either glowing or constructive, we'd really appreciate it. We're also on Instagram and Twitter at Volmania, and you can email us, especially your short listener voicemail reviews, at volmania at gmail.com. To close, as always, I'd like to thank my co-host Jordan, Sean for the excellent conversation, Anna Martha Roth for allowing us to use an incomplete map of Volmania as our show's logo, novelist, substacker, and friend of the show Aaron Gwynn for his excellent cover of Immigrant Song, each of our listeners who provided their thoughts on the ice shirt in our new segment, and finally, as always, to Bill. Thanks for all the words.